Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bareback Facts. Today I have with me a very special guest. Um, I've got Daniel Holbonner, a recent master's graduate from the University of Akron. He is he specialized in his master's in studying Japanese history. He did a lot with the samurai and the concept of Bushido. Daniel, how are we doing? I'm doing very well, sir. How about yourself? I am doing great. Welcome to the Bareback Facts, man. So let's just dive right into it. Um, you know, you and I, we did a little talk before, you know, we, we decided to do the show. And we talked a little bit about sort of the challenges of a young scholar. But you, you have a very unique, uh, you have a very unique set of challenges that face you because you don't study, uh, you know, American history or European history uh, to the extent that you know most scholars today do, you study Japanese history. So tell me a little bit about the challenges you faced uh, when doing your research. What's it like? Well, I mean, it's not impossible, but it was, like you said, challenging. Uh, at the University of Akron, we did not have a specialist in Japanese history. Uh, so generally, I had to talk about the concepts in doing history, the methodology with other scholars who either did China or were doing something in more of an imperial sense and then seeing how they did their work and then trying to figure it out on my own. So a lot of times I would either try to contact professors that I had met uh, there and asking them, like, where could I start? What books should I be looking into? What historiography should I be delving into? Um, and then a lot of times I had to basically just go on different search websites for uh, scholastic articles and dissertations and just see what I could find by typing in different types of uh, keywords like Bushido or Samurai or something like that. Um, fortunately, during my undergrad years, I had done a lot of that stuff on my own. And a good tip for most scholars is uh, if you see, if you're reading the introduction, a historical monograph. A bunch of names mentioned. Those are always good names to start with, but also just start checking out the bibliography at the back of the book. Um, and anything that looks interesting to you, highlight it, buy it on Amazon, get it through the library, anything you need to, that'll be a good start. But uh, particularly because no one did my field, and at the University of Akron, they do not have a strong Japanese language program. Um, that became very challenging because in order to do Japanese history, I need to work with Japanese materials. And unless I can get over there on a regular basis and then work within a Japanese university, I don't really have uh, quite often to download Again, Japanese. Could you repeat that a little bit? Could, could you go back when you were saying uh, you, unless you could go to a Japanese university, uh, you cut out there for a second. Could you go back and repeat that for me? Oh, sure. Like, unless I had access to Japan, like I go to the Japanese universities uh, and then go into their archives, it was really hard to get your hand on primary source material. Uh, most of it just generally wasn't around. And if not then, like you had to subscribe to a, a private archive for newspapers that would often cost a couple thousand dollars. 
And still, you're not really getting a lot of the material that you need, like if you're going to work with Samurai. Now, if I was looking at modern stuff, that would be fine. But most of the things here, you have to try and get translated. Uh, so it was really, really difficult. And the language barrier is also an issue because there's not really a good Japanese program at my university. Um, so there's some good teachers, but they're not focusing on it. So for a master's student to do something like do your qualifying exams in Japanese would be uh, immensely challenging. Taking on learning that language by yourself. Um, so it can be, it's very difficult, but not impossible, particularly because uh, most of the faculty. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned one of the major difficulties you had was source material. I want you to explain to the audience, Daniel, how important it is when you're studying uh, a culture, especially one that you're not really all that familiar with, uh, yet, tell them, tell them how important it is for you to get your hands on these primary sources and, and how important it is to have at least some general comprehension of these sources. Because, I mean, again, uh, you know, this is a very key aspect of doing his history, historiographical work, uh, is getting mm-hmm. your hands on primary sources. Oh, yeah. It's, it's probably the most important thing. Like, more important than learning different methodology or trying to, you know, even read the secondary source material, the other books other people have published in your own language. The important thing is having the evidence yourself to look at. Because if you do not, no one will take you seriously. Because you need to look at it yourself in order to get a sense for yourself of what might have happened. Otherwise, you're always operating off of someone else's interpretation and you don't know if they got it right you don't know if they're lying to you so you it's really really important if you're going to be taken seriously as a scholar that you look at the primary source materials yourself now that necessitates if you're doing something outside of the u.s or any english-speaking country that of course you learn and master that language so yeah i mean my japanese is uh Nowhere near where it should be. My fiance does Italian history, Renaissance specifically, and luckily for her, she grew up picked up a few other Speaking languages along the way. Yeah, yeah, so so she uh, is able to read 15th, 16th century documents in Italian, no problem. She can just jump right in. For me, I have to go back and learn Kambun and Kobun, which are traditional forms of Japanese, kind of like Old English or Shakespearean English after right. that. And uh, the grammar structure changes, the characters they use that they use change. So that can be tricky. But it's, it, it, you can't be taken seriously if you do not do that. Right. So I mean, and I faced a lot of the same challenges when I did when I when I was doing mine. I, I did German history, and I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about these different dialects. You know, Old High German, Old Low German, completely different. You know, different words for greetings, different words for farewells, different attitudes and intonations with words, and especially in Japanese, where words, uh, you know, carry a tone. Right. I mean, they carry oh, certain yeah. implications. Uh, you know, there's so many interpretations of each character in Japanese. So, I mean, you know, I really feel for you in the challenge. But you well, did, I, you did your work on uh, on. I remember when we when we went to Akron together, you did a lot of work on trying to flesh out the concept of bushido 
And so I really think that that is exactly what a lot of people tend to hear about now. They want to understand Bushido. Uh, they've, they've seen The Last Samurai, Daniel, and they're pretty <laughs> sure that they know. They're pretty sure they know how it goes. You walk up yeah. to Japan and you become a samurai. So let's talk a little bit about the, the preliminary history of a samurai. And why don't you give us a little insight into what it was like for early samurai and what it would have been like for people who were not samurai, uh, you know, during that time to be around samurai. Now, it's interesting. Right. Now, it's interesting because uh, Tom Cruise's character does this sort of show up and then just become included, and he then takes on the armor and the swords, and he learns the fighting style. And the next thing you know, I guess he is one, and it's never really clarified. But that's more or less how it used to work. Um, not, it's a little more complicated than that, as everything always is. But around the 800s, when Japan started to separate itself more from China and kind of assert its own identity, they had different families vying for control in Kyoto and in uh, some of the other old capitals. And as they kind of interacted and, and, and strife arose, and as they tried to push deeper into the north of the biggest island of Japan, Honshu, um, you had a lot of these warrior families pop up who were more or less mercenaries and originally were not titled Samurai, that was a little bit later on, but they solidified and different families grew in power. And the next thing you know, around, I think it was the 1100s, you have two big names. The uh, Minamoto, also known as the, uh, the Genji, and the uh, Mataira, or uh, crap, what was your other name? Well, anyway, the Taira. And uh, they were, the Taira were generally more seafaring, whereas the Minamoto were a lot more in, in the mountains, and they were up on the front lines pushing the quote-unquote barbarians back. Now, uh, it's around the outbreak of the Genpei Wars. And these wars essentially became a... The, the justification for it was some sort of court issue... I don't even remember the exact details of such because it's so, going a little bit. One one moment before we get too far, uh, tell our audience a little bit what what are the Genpei Wars, uh, and these two families that rise to prominence. Tell us a little bit, flesh out for us a little bit how they rise to prominence uh, as mercenaries. What makes them stick out past these other families? Well, most of the people who had any capital, so they weren't really concerned with anything close to combat. It was mostly poetry competitions, not necessarily tea ceremonies at this point, but uh, learning classical Confucianism, working on the calligraphy, uh, trying to ascend court ranks. Um, that was their prerogative, and they received their taxation from out and about in their various lands. Now, in order to increase their tax base, they needed to increase their farmlands. And the only way to do this was to enroach on the territory controlled by the uh, hundreds of years ago. So the Minamoto specifically were instrumental in pushing those people back 
and claiming those lands for the Japanese state. Um, so initially, they didn't really resemble the samurai as we come to know them later in the 1700s. Uh, they were mostly just mercenaries, and they weren't really able to claim like any sort of special lineage. Uh, and it's not even until 1590, in the 1590s with the sword hunts that you can't have people move through the ranks of society like pet. So these people could have just been farmers, uh, as far as I know. I could be incorrect, but I am pretty relatively certain that at this point it's a lot more fluid. In fact, a lot of times samurai during the off-season would go and till farmlands themselves. Specifically, they did not have a lot of money. Now, these two families did because they had a lot of patrons back in the capital. So the Genpei Wars arises because these two are now vying for power in the capital. They've begun to marry their daughters and their sons to prominent imperial families. And to struggle for control over who's going to be the main family, the main, and, and receive patronage for the emperor. So Eventually, after a long process, Minamoto no Yoritomo uh, of the Minamoto of the Genji is victorious. And there are a lot of legends and stories and songs and things arise out of the Genpei Wars. They're legendary. They're famous. Um, but he takes control and he establishes the shogunate and a bakufu, which is a tent government. And it's essentially just a militar- militaristic totalitarian rule. And he puts his capital in Kamakura. Tokyo, and uh, he's the first who kind of solidifies, like, this is, okay, so now this is a warrior profession. It is a distinct class in society. It's still pretty tenuous. It's still pretty fluid. People can move up and move down, but this is when you begin to have a real concept of this person's job is samurai. They are a warrior. That's what they are. This person is a peasant. They are a farmer. That's what they are. This person is an artisan. This person is a merchant. So that's around the time you begin to get those solidifications, and that's around the time beginning to write codes of ethics for these warriors specifically. Now, Bushido itself does not arise until much, much later, but you do have an idea of what you're supposed to do. What is the proper decorum for these people? So Now, when we, when we get to this point, uh, this is a common question. I'm sure you get this question a lot, Daniel, but I want to ask it anyway, uh, because I'm sure people are trying, to, are trying to make this connection. But how close is this code to the sort of rules and ethics that is expected of knights in medieval Europe? That is a I conflated myself, particularly back in high school. Because I remember I was like, oh, I'm going to look up all this cool stuff, and I'm going to make my own code of honor, and I'm going to follow it. And so I was just blending a whole bunch of crap. But uh, <laughs> to be honest, I think in some ways it's incredibly similar. And in some ways it's incredibly dissimilar. Um, obviously it's two totally distinct cultures, two totally like, different times. Like. Um and one persists a lot longer, but I think that they are the same in that they are basically societal construction made right. this idea, and then they reinterpreted it for their own purposes in whatever time period they happen to be living in. Um, and that way, they are very, very similar. And of course, there are certain 
expectations. For some reason, both of them expect men to be doing a lot of the work. Um, women are basically not allowed to really do a whole, whole lot, which is unfortunate. Uh, because as we know, women can kick ass too. So I don't know why they weren't well, having I, them do I that. I just want to clarify. Well, I do want to clarify for the audience that in medieval Europe, uh, specifically, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know how well this applies to uh, women in Japan, particularly with the rise of the samurai. But in medieval Europe, women were still kicking ass. I mean, they were heads of the household. Uh, they they still ran uh, the finances of the noble houses. They were expected to do that. Uh, and even some women, some women, so rare, uh, even some of them led their own armies. So, well, now uh, it's interesting you know, that you, yeah. No, so it's, I'm curious. So that aspect of, of this particular time period, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Actually, it's good you mentioned that because it's actually, that's another way in which things are very similar. I mean, in some ways, the quote um, did allow women more freedom than women in the Victorian period had, certainly, because there are a lot of Japanese wives uh, of samurai were running the household. So they were the ones that had to make sure the expenses were met, and they were doing a lot of the accounting work. Um, they yep. were the one who managed all the servants, all the concubines, all the children, uh, even some of the retainers. I mean, you had to pay deference to the wife of your lord, certainly. And she could give you orders, too. Um, it's, it's not like they did not have power. And it's very similar, I think, in that way to how... Now, there were women emperors, but that was a little before the time of the samurai, who were very powerful, particularly in, in militaristically. Uh, and there were women after the time of the samurai or during who controlled things a lot behind the scenes. Um, they were not often allowed to take, you know, the range officially, but they wielded a great deal of influence. And oftentimes samurai women were trained to fight particularly because to allow yourself to be captured, to allow yourself to suffer a fate worse than death as they So you would so in fight. Other words, to be dishonored. Yeah, no dishonor. You kill yourself first if you couldn't kill the other person. But uh, more so, a lot of times I think they would train with a spear and with daggers and things like that. And, of course, women uh, who were not samurai or who were sometimes were often trained as assassins and so on and so forth. But... Uh, um, so in that way, things were very, very similar. Um, it was still highly a patriarchal society, though. Uh, yeah. Men ultimately dictated what would happen, and where, and women were often traded as uh, so, or marriages were arranged for the sake of alliances. A lot of times, right? So this, women were often seen as a as a commodity, uh, a means of advancement in society. The the, the perpetrators of the, the continuers of the of the family line, but also the the bridgers of gaps in in treaties and and the like. Oh, absolutely. Now, I think that their humanity would often still recognize, but the concept of romantic love, too, even as we know in Europe, I'm sure, is, is oh yes, yes, not really coming into play here lots as much. Of, lots of marriages of necessity, yes. Yeah, a lot of things of convenience, a lot, and I think that it's understandable because at that time, um, you can't really concern. Like if you're 
a low-ranking samurai and you're trying to marry your daughter off to someone who's in a better family, who's in a better financial position, and she is aware of that too, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of discrepancy there or a lot of complaints. Um, you're not going to care about whether or not you love this person because you're too busy trying to ensure your own survival. Um, it's only after we begin to have a lot more freedom uh, that people begin to care a lot more. Right. Uh, so let's let's push the conversation forward a little more. So we talked. You've talked a little bit about sort of the the rise, if you will, of the concept of the samurai. So mm-hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the attempts of shogunates to sort of reassert control and the and the struggles that we see with samurai because this is the this is the stuff we often think about when we think of samurai, right? These guys that go around. And they, they, they swear their loyalty to these various lords, and all these lords are vying for the – it's like Game of Thrones, but in Japan, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah. of, of, sort of, the, uh, of sort of the ebb and flow, the shifts in power, was power very fluid in Japan during this time, or, or did uh, certain people just kind of hang on to it? Well, I mean, as you find in most societies, there are agrarian and uh, uh, as often as bandied about, quote unquote, feudal, even though it's a bit of an uh, issue word. Um, yeah, I mean, a, yeah. a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people who had power often kept power, but that wasn't necessarily always the case. I mean, the most famous example is Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who wasn't able to become a class, but he was a peasant, and through the 1550s to the 1590s, rose through the ranks of Odo Nobunaga's armies and became de facto shogun. Um, he was called the Taiko, I believe. Uh, he And then he kind of closed off that way of ascent for everybody who was in the samurai after him, which is a dick move. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, yeah, so he was able to climb up. And so people could seize power. And you often had peasant revolts. Religious term, you had really powerful monasteries and shrines who often maintained their own armies and were able to tax lands on their own. Um, And that's something that people often forget. They get this really one-dimensional picture of a Yamabushi, which is a warrior monk, but uh, a lot of times they were indistinguishable from the other warriors on the battlefield. They didn't wear special head robes and that looked, you know, essentially like Shaolin or anything. Um, they had the same armor, and they were mercenary armors, armies, basically in the service of a temple. Uh, earlier in the Genpei Wars, uh, one of the more famous people to rise out of that was Minamoto Yoshitsune, and his most prominent retainer was a man named Benkei who was this giant mountain of a man uh, who was a monk down in, towards Kyoto, I believe. And he was uh, not Honnoji. No, that's, that's a different temple. Anyway, I can't remember the name of the temple he used to work at, but he was essentially a monk, but also a fighter. And uh, so those people had a lot of power too. So it was possible for people on the bottom to influence. It just as we so often see with history, is a lot more difficult, or at least is written out of the historical narrative. 
So I guess one one thing that we would we would have to examine is how stratified then is the society uh, after we have sort of this establishment of a more uh, military militaristic almost totalitarian rule of some of these shoguns. Uh, how how stratified is society at this point? Are the are the class lines like clear cut for for a lot of people for large periods of time, or or how much how much of people do we see bleed over over the years into these other classes? How much rise is there among them? Well, like I was saying before, a lot of times samurai would often take on peasant-like qualities or even merchant-like qualities. Uh, during times when they weren't at war in order to survive or to pay their bills, particularly lower-class As time wears on, they become more solidified. And one of the old ways of stratifying society when we look at history, Japanese history is you have samurai on top, and then there's peasants, and then there's artisans. So it's spam, if you will. Uh, Merchants are always on the bottom. And then there is, of course, another unspoken of group of people that are only now in Japanese society beginning to, you know, push for uh, non-discriminatory practices and, and, and more human rights uh, called the Burakumi, who were often people who handled dead bodies or the tanning of leather or other things that were considered impure. Um, they didn't really factor into this a whole lot. Uh, and I'm sure there's been a lot of fascinating historical studies on those people as they move through history, but I have not read them. So they had oh. their own, so much like uh, much like we see in India, they actually had their own class of untouchables in Japan. Exactly. That's a good way of putting it uh, uh, quickly. Is they were basically the untouchables. Um, and you did not want to be associated with them much if you could help it. Now, so Sam and I were on the top, but it was possible to marry into a samurai family or for samurai to move out of the warrior class. Um, it did not happen often, but they did have a lot of power and a lot of influence. And often it was, there was a lot of vassalage. Well, for swear fealty to their lords, and then they would be allotted or assigned to a certain area of land. And there would be peasants who lived on that land who would then, you know, uh, farm rice and so on and so forth, and you had the ability to tax them, and then you had to kick certain taxes back up. So essentially a feudal system, um, but there was maneuverability there. Now, around the 1590s, when Hideyoshi Toyotomi begins to take control, he puts out an edict called the Sword Hunt. And what that does is it begins removing the populace. Because most of the armies at this point were not comprised of samurai alone. That changed after the invasion of the Mongols, um, wherein they found that that's not going to work anymore. So they had a lot of ashigaru, which were these basically peasant warriors who would have long spears and so on. And they began to seize weapons from them. And they made it so that only the samurai class could carry weapons. That's why it was so important that you carried the two swords because that was a marker of your status. And as we know through history, the first thing you do when you get away from you or challenging you is you take away all their weapons um, or their ability to fight back. So now, that was one, 
one thing I also want to wanted to ask you, uh, Dan, in regards to this, you know, uh, you know, we we think of, when we think about samurai, you know, much of what we what we think about is what we see in the movies and what we see in video games. We have these, you know, these picturesque ideas of guys who who their their word is their bond, they're bound to whoever they're serving. Uh, but we we had similar ideas about knights, and then when you go in. Uh, into medieval Europe, and you start looking at the history, you realize that knights could literally just sell their loyalty whenever they wanted to. Uh, you'd find knights that were, uh, you know, swearing fealty to multiple lords, and then they just kind of picked their poison when it came down to fighting time. They would just kind of pick the guy they thought would win, and you know. So, talk about talk about some of that. Uh, tell me a little bit about what what it was like for a samurai to sort of be. Uh, in service to a lord. Well, Talk about that relationship for us. Interestingly enough, it's a lot of the same. <laughs> uh, <laughs> until the Edo period, which I'll get to later, that's structured into a, uh, a clear and more defined code of behaviors. Uh, before then, Oftentimes, samurai would. They would ditch their lord if they thought that he was going to lose and they would get a better deal from the other side. Uh, sometimes they just flat out wouldn't show up to fight if they thought they were far away enough to escape repercussion. Uh, a lot of times, people would stop in the middle of a battle and switch sides. That happened even at famous battles like Sekigahara in 1600. Um, and it turns the tide. Uh, people would use underhanded tactics with like assassins like ninja to try to subvert power from their lords. Uh, a lot of sons would absolutely break Confucian values and kill their fathers and seize control. Um, Date Masamune around the same period during the Sengoku Jidai, the Sengoku period, uh, he famously uh, killed his family members in order to solidify his control. A lot of people did. Um, if you were more merciful, maybe you wouldn't kill people in your family. You would simply exile them. Um, and, but never, and see, this is where this is one thing where I would like to point out. There is a little bit of a distinction here uh, to be made because you know you kind of wanted to avoid killing your family members in Europe. You you usually gave them a chance. You know, you kind of kind of just said, okay, well, I'm taking control, and that's that. If you don't like it, well, then maybe I kill you. But here's mm-hmm. your chance to sort of leave the land and get out. Uh, don't challenge my authority. Uh, but, in, but in many cases, that ended up biting people in the rear. So you're telling me that a lot of these guys, they just circumvented all that and just killed their – some of these guys actually just circumvented that whole process, just killed their relatives outright to take control of, of their their household. Oh, yeah. Well, and a lot of people – I can't remember who it is, but I had heard uh, through my studies – um, I read about one guy who I think his whole family was held hostage by somebody else, and he just let them all die so he could do whatever he wanted, and he just started over again. I mean, it's a, it's, it sounds brutal, but, I mean, to be honest, I think what you mentioned with Europe, it shows that this is more indicative of human behavior rather than oh, a yeah. cultural thing. I think oh, a yeah. lot of times people will sacrifice or kill whoever or whomever they want if it means they're going to get a bigger piece of the pie. Uh, and it's at least understandable because we're all human. We can all understand. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I didn't want to – and for those of you listening, don't think for a second that 
knights in Europe and and nobles in Europe would not kill their relatives. Uh, we we see it. We see, uh, you know, in the case of guys like Pepin the Short, go to war with their relatives, raise an entire army to kill their their relative. Uh, you know, so yeah. don't don't think for a second that you know Japan all of a sudden is you know they in their history medieval medieval Japan you know samurai era Japan if you will. They're the only ones doing it because in Europe uh, it was quite common to war for for the throne. I mean, we see we saw it multiple times in in many scenarios where people thought the heir is weak. I will raise my own army. I'll I'll come into the throne room and I'll kill him. Uh, oh yeah. Or in so you know, I just want to point out real quick there for the audience that by no by no stretch of the imagination is this unique to Japan. Uh, this is this is something that takes place in many parts of the world in in many many different cultures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even re- in the universal. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I lost um, you for but, a second there. Could you repeat that last yeah, part, please? Greed is, yeah, greed is universal. So. You know, yeah. every yeah, every culture's got greedy greedy people in it. Um, so we we talked a little bit. You talked a little bit about the Mongol invasions, as sort of where things kind of changed a little bit. So what what changed in regards to you know uh, you mentioned the sword hunt, uh, and you you kind of broke up a little bit there. But tell us a little bit more about the sword hunt, the objective uh, of the sword hunt, what that was about. Okay, well, the sword hunt by Toyotomi Hideyoshi was an effort to seize the weaponry from the general because uh, a lot of people in the armies at the time were called Ashigaru, which were peasant warriors, more or less. Um, and they, they were not full-fledged samurai, even though they could become samurai. Uh, that's what Toyotomi Hideyoshi was. So what he was effectively doing was cutting off the ability of the people like himself to rise up through the ranks like himself. So, and uh, like I said before, like it's it's kind of funny because uh, everybody always talks about how they seize the weaponry of the populace. Uh, dictators do before they take by their control, and it's certainly true in this case. Now, that's not to say that there still weren't peasant revolts. There were. There weren't efforts to secretly ship weapons throughout the country because there were. Because there always are methods of getting around those things. Nevertheless, uh, this did really help to establish a firm, set, hereditary class of samurai. Talk about now as we move forward is this is a marker. Okay, after the sword hunt, guys, things change. Uh, you know, Daniel mentioned that it's, it becomes harder now to become a samurai. You pretty much have to be born in the family. You've got to be. You have to receive a, a special education. Am I right there, mm-hmm. Daniel? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, a lot of times you you are someone who were trained in Neo Confucian Confucian tendencies, or uh, you would study those classics, um, and you would read some of the even something like the Monyash, what's it called? Monyash, a thousand leaves, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, but you you'd be doing a lot of private study. Now, now tell us a little bit about the Sengoku Goku, Goku period. I'm sorry, and the rise of of guys like uh, Takeda Shingen and Usagiyuki uh, Kenshin. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that, and and how that all played into sort of the eventual unification of Japan. Now, the Sengoku period 
otherwise known as the Warring States period, uh, directly translated, is probably the more one of the more famous periods of Japanese history, and I think it's the one that is often uh, popularized outside of Japan. Uh, the Genpei Wars is one. Sometimes the Edo period, a major period, is some. Most of the video games like Kessen and so on and so forth, or even Onimusha, uh, talk about the Sengoku Jidai. That is a period, I'd say, roughly from the mid-15th century to into the 16th century, ending right around the rise of Tokugawa Ieyasu um, and the establishment of his shogun in, I think, 1603. That period is when you have all of the individual daimyo or lords controlling their own swaths of land and having their own armies begin to either make and break alliances as they all try because at this point in time whoever controls the capital whoever gets an imperial mandate to become shogun the uh, subduer of barbarians then they are a de facto ruler of the nation now just getting that title does not necessarily mean you have control which is one <laughs> of the issues that people fought uh, had within the Ashikaga Shogunate, because the reason that one started to break down is because, and we give birth to the Sengoku Jidai, is uh, they were losing control on the outskirts uh, on Japan a lot of time. So, Takeda Shingen was the one I think that most people expected to become Shogun next. He controlled the Kanto Plains, where Tokyo is today, or Edo at the time. Uh, that was not his capital, but his main rival was Uesugi Kenshin, and uh, a lot of legends have been told about their battles together. Um, one of the famous ones that often is cited about samurai decorum to each other is uh, when Kenshin, uh, no, Takeda Shingen is missing salt. He's not able to get it. He's going through a famously sends him a bunch because he said, I'm fighting a war with Swords, not salt, or something to that effect. Uh, that was relatively rare most of the time. I think things were a lot more like a total war situation. Okay. But, uh, Here you go. Hey, buddy, yeah. uh, I know we're going to kill each We're going to try to kill each other tomorrow, but I don't want your stew to not be salty. Here's some salt. <laughs> yeah. No, he's like, no, look, look, if we're going to win this, we're going to win this by killing you, not by starving you. Uh, Listen, so, you're going to eat. <laughs> okay, so continue. Yeah, so Takeda Shingen, though, dies. Um, and Akira Kurosawa did a really famous movie about this, which is fantastic if anybody's interested. Um, and his son takes control. Now, it's around this time... Takeda Katsuyori. It's around this time that Oda Nobunaga is beginning to rise to power. Uh, after a surprise victory uh, against his neighbors, neighbors, I think it's the Imagawa, um, where Tokugawa Ieyasu was a vassal of, he was in power and controlling a lot more than he expected. And next, Takeda Katsuyori attacks him with the famous Takeda Cavalry. And so what did Oda do but establish stockade 
because this is around the time they were beginning to really effectively use guns that they received from the Portuguese. And he sets them up so that there's uh, three rows of men and one group, the first group would fire from behind the stockades at the cavalry. Then as they start dropping to load, the second group would fire. Then they would drop to load and the third group would fire. And then the first group would be ready again after the third group fired. So your bullets, it devastated the Takeda cavalry and really solidified Oda Nobunaga, one of the first unifiers of Japan, like on his push to the capital. And he makes it. Uh, unfortunately for him, he is, of course, killed by Akechi Mitsuhide, um, the famous 13-day shogun, who is then killed by Toyotoma Hideyoshi. But anyway, so that's there is an example of the change in warfare. It's an example of the strife between local lords and how that affects the rest of Japan and how it contributes to the and it also shows you through Akechi Mitsuhide how loyalty was fickle at, at this point in time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought some of those points up. So one thing I, I have to ask, you know, you mentioned that this, this new technology, this, this use of rifles, which they had uh, for a while, because they've been trading with Portuguese for, for, a, for a little bit at that point. Mm-hmm. At uh, least for 30, 40 years. Yeah. About, yeah, a couple, a few decades there. Um, you know, there's there's something to be said for you know how how technology changes warfare. So I, I guess I'm curious. At this point in time, did samurai realize the potential at this point that firearms had in battle, or did they sort of continue uh, what their more traditional styles of warfare were were like? Uh, that's a good point, particularly because you mentioned Last Samurai earlier. Um, right, they absolutely right. embraced and utilized this technology. Everybody had guns. Guns mattered. They were important. And a lot of Japanese artificers began trying to make their own arborists. They weren't muskets so much as they were arborists, arborists, forms of guns. Yeah. Um, and they were relatively successful. Um, they became, they were prominent on the battlefield. They were not the most important thing, obviously. It was just, I mean, when you had the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, you had tens of thousands of men on the field. I mean, most of the guns were important, but not the main factor. Um, a lot of times you were still using just your general infantry, and you had uh, a variety of other forces at play there. But they definitely made an impact, particularly I mean, in this battle. I know, yeah, because, I mean, I know in Europe, uh, the advent of, you know, artillery is what really uh, sealed the deal for the Knights. I mean, once they started using – I mean, the, they, they first had uh, crossbows, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they stepped towards uh, cannon, and cannon was the game changer that really made Knights realize, yeah, this, this is game over for us. Uh, yeah. You know, people realized right then and there that they had the great equalizer. Before, you know, you, these knights could kind of run roughshod over everybody, but they didn't adapt. They thought, oh, well, you know, the bow, that's a, you know, a peasant weapon. That's a weak person's weapon. Uh, up yeah. Until that, and then Cannon set in and they said, yeah, no. So it's it's interesting that you brought up the fact that Samurai, in fact, did embrace these this new technology. I mean, they didn't shy away from it. No. No, absolutely not. Oh, it looks like but, we have a caller. Let's see what this person has to say, Dan. 
All right. You are live with the Bareback Facts. This is Dallas, and with me is Daniel Hovater. Go ahead. <coughs> yeah, excuse me. Um, I absolutely like your guys' show. I haven't ever heard it before. Um, but uh, you guys are actually talking about, you know, something I'm interested in. Uh, All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, do you mind if I ask how long you've been on radio? Uh, well, I've actually started uh, at the end of last year. And uh, this is a new part of my show. Uh, beginning, uh, just starting this year with this part of my show, I've been inviting young scholars onto my show, uh, young writers, young artists, and giving them a chance to showcase their research and what they're passionate about. Uh, before that, I was just doing uh, breakdowns of, uh, you know, historical events, uh, terms, legends, myths, and, and the like. Uh, so I'm glad you're enjoying it. Do you have questions for Daniel? Yeah, I actually do have one question. Um, so uh, I, I, you were talking about uh, – it sounded like you were talking about feudal Japan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I'm curious to know, have you ever heard of the Jitsu? The uh, – could you say that one more time? Uh, the Jitsu, like the uh, the little uh, – No, uh, no uh, Jitsu. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's basically it's, – it's a principle in Japan – um, and it's basically where you bend over and take a giant cock up your asshole um, without getting shit on it. And you can't. And, well, Daniel, you know, it, it, sometimes we get these callers. What I, like to, what I like to do with them is let them embarrass themselves <laughs> and then continue on. I was actually kind of hoping we wouldn't get one of those, even for a brief moment, that we would get somebody decent for once. But every once in a while, I get a bad one. I'm sorry you had to go through that, Dan. Well, for a second, I thought he was talking about the Jizo, or how do you pronounce it, where it's these little Buddhist statues that I think were supposed to be indicative of children that had died. So I thought he was asking well, about that. But, uh, well, well, you never no, know what fine. you're going to get. You, know, you never know what you're going to get. I know that it's unfortunate that that'll be part of the show now, but uh, let's move <laughs> forward, shall we? Uh, so well, we I was just going to say, like, I, I, I don't, don't mind that as much as somebody, but I will say if somebody catches me saying something incorrect, please do correct me, because that's something oh, I well, think. Oh, well, let's a lot see what this people... person has to say now. All right, Dan, hopefully we got a decent person. You are live with the Bareback Facts, and I please, please hope with everything that I have that you actually have serious questions for Daniel. Or corrections. Or hey, corrections. I heard that guy, and that you know, I don't know why these jackasses got to be calling your show. But anyway, like I was saying about that hot butt sex, you really got to ram it in. <laughs> wow. I had a feeling his voice sounded a little familiar. Now, it uh, is I, interesting I to mention, feeling. though. He, he, yeah. You know, hey, you know, he used a different number. I'll give him some credit. Guy, I really wish you'd stop calling in. We should come up with something better, actual questions for Dan. Well, no. But you know what? Let's, let's wait a second, though, because he brings up an interesting point. Now, I think particularly in our perception of manliness and how warriors work, we always assume that they are never gay. You know what? That's a good homosexuality point. Homosexuality and homosexuality. Let's go with Dan. Yeah. Homosexuality in Japan and samurai culture actually was very prevalent. Now, what I'm about to talk about is mostly focusing on the Edo period, which I haven't really been able to detail yet. But I was reading a book called uh, Zen and the Way of the Sword 
written by Winston L. King. And he talks a lot about how he had a lot of homosexual relationships, uh, particularly between an older samurai, generally around 40, 45 years old, with a younger samurai. I'd say, you know, around teenage, like, I'm going to get 27. And uh, they would foster so homosexual probably, relationships. Probably about as old as the guy that just called in. Probably. Uh, at least I hope so. Because then if you're that old <laughs> and you're still doing that, then man, find a job or something to do. Um, <laughs> I don't have enough time in the damn day to do most of the things I want to do. I wish I had time to crank call. But, you know, yeah, I know. But, but you know, nevertheless, you bring that up. It's interesting yeah. you bring that up because I, you know, I never would have thought that. Oh no! And in fact, it was often encouraged because they thought that that homosexual relationship than his vassal would foster greater loyalty between the two. Now, really? often, yeah, the younger of the two, um, the generally, oh, right, right. I guess, would be eventually leave, and he would the relationship, and he would get married, and he would have kids, and do his Confucian duty. Because as a Confucianist, you had to make sure that you continued the family line. But eventually, as he came of age himself and was into his 40s and his 50s, he would take an apprentice slash homosexual lover himself. So that was a common practice for a long, long time. The idea of homosexuality as it exists today exists back then. Similar to the issues of Bushido that we face. The idea of Bushido back then does not mirror what we have today. Really? Well, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it's interesting you bring this up because this is something that I've talked about before. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that just because these guys may give off this air of machismo and, and macho-ness and this, this very masculine sense uh, doesn't mean that they weren't uh, in many cases gay, which is very odd. You don't think about it in that way, but, you know, I think a key example of this uh, can be found in uh, the in Spartan culture, um, and in the and in the film Three Hundred, we see uh, you know these very larger than life characters, right, uh, mm-hmm. who are uber masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they're they're at the pinnacle of you know young manhood, uh, but at the same time, you know you you dig into what is actually going on in Spartan culture, and you realize uh, that young Spartan men often their first encounter sexually was with their physical trainer, who was a man. Yeah. Uh, and, and you find that, you know, these in these relationships between men were meant to breed camaraderie, but at the same time, uh, this uber-masculine sense that they're giving off is, well, we are the height of society. We are the, the men, and, and we don't want to be with someone lesser than ourselves. So this self-worship almost inspires that out of necessity, right? Exactly. Now, of course, our conceptualization of what it means to be gay and their conceptualization of what they were doing is obviously entirely different because they wouldn't have even defined it in those terms. I mean, they don't link the act with their own, with their definition of their self-sexuality. But, uh, because we know nowadays that sexuality is fluid, gender is fluid, all that jazz. So, particularly it's true with history, um, they would not have seen that as an issue. And it's interesting you mentioned the movie 300 because I remember specifically at one point Leonidas makes fun of the Greeks and calls them boy lovers or something. And I'm thinking to myself, boy lovers, yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm like, but that's you, dude. Like, that's yeah, what you do. That's weird. So, yeah, I'm like, well, somebody didn't do their research, I guess. But even have reference from uh, what is it? Uh, you know, uh, Michael Fassbender's character who makes the reference. You know, you mind offering your backside? Should I offer your backside to the Thespians? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, so that subtle nod that hey, you know, I'm really impressed with your work. Let's you know, blur this a little bit. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting that that is something that is so uh, polarizing now, but for them, it uh, was thought of in completely different terms. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So I'm actually kind of glad we got to flesh that out because that is actually something that I had no idea about. So that's actually quite fascinating. So I wanted to yeah. talk a little bit more about this concept of, uh, you mentioned Neo-Confucianism. And, and you mentioned these, mm-hmm. this sort of uh, almost a, a formal education. Could you tell us a little bit about what these expectations are? What, what kind of an education uh, was that for, us, for these young men? What was the expectation after receiving it? And sort of uh, what, what did they take away from it? What was meant to be the, the lessons for them? Well, you know, it becomes it's complicated here because I, I have to admit I don't know as much as I'd like to. Um, after Sekigahara in 1600, the shogunate, which lasts until the Meiji Restoration, which is in the 1860s. Now, in this period, education is a lot more solidified, particularly for a samurai. And one of the main schools of thought, excuse me, was uh, Neo-Confucianism. Now, this is a resurgence of the traditional Confucianism at the time, which is, is influenced by what's happening in China, because honestly, Japan is never really that cut off from Korea and China. I mean, there's always trade, there's always some influence, despite the fact that Japan at this point had really solidified its own identity. Um, so these guys would text, they would read through all of that. Any other Chinese masters, they would study them too. And by this point, Buddhism had arrived, so they were studying a lot of these Buddhist texts, and it was a really big surge of what I would go ahead and call nationalism, because it was a distinct cultural identity of Japanese-ness at this point, and it was a push for the study of Shintoism, because Shinto was the traditional Japanese religion as they saw it. And so they were often juxtaposing this against the Neo-Confucian schools of thought. So what all of this was meant to do was help men to understand why they existed, what their class was meant to do, and what they were supposed to do in society. So often it was a lot of moral education, as Confucianism often is, and it taught a lot about loyalty and what you were expected to do in society and why only you could do that. So that was all really interesting. Um, It's not until later that some of that starts to change, but that's where you begin to get a lot of this sort of bids for control over the young mind. Yeah, so it's interesting that you point that out because I am seeing a lot of parallels and I hate to draw back to Europe, but that is where my strong suit lies. So I want Absolutely. to move it forward. Again. Uh, I want to move it forward again. You mentioned the rise of the merchant class and, and we talked about this a little bit, but I want to flesh this out, uh, how the times change. Uh, you know, when you see people with, when the control of wealth begins to shift 
how that has a direct impact on power uh, and who has it and who now doesn't. Uh, the ability to buy your own army changes the complexion of things a great deal. Tell us Actually, a little bit about the effect yeah. of the rise of a merchant class. Well, this is a good time to talk about that because uh, it's around the Edo period, too, that you have the rise of the merchant class because now that there's peace, um, particularly down in Osaka, it's a rising mercantile center. You have a lot of these merchants becoming exceedingly powerful because they control a lot of capital. Now, traditionally, they were seen as leeches on society. They did not produce anything like pedants. They were not like samurai. And they didn't even make anything like the artisans. So they were basically just profiting off of everyone else's labor. And it sounds very <laughs> socialistic in its approach, but uh, not quite. But nevertheless, these guys began to gain a lot of power, a lot of influence. So much so that a lot of these merchants had big influence in the realm of aesthetics and Japanese culture and art. And also, sometimes even though the sword hunt had already happened and solidified samurai classes, uh, the merchants were still sometimes able they had a ton of influence. Now, samurai, too, were beginning to get poorer and poorer and poorer, specifically because the bakufu, the Tokugawa bakufu, instituted these visitation programs where different daimyo, based on their stipend, were expected to visit the capital every few years and to spend an exact amount of money visiting that capital. They had to have so many men in procession wearing certain types of gear and armor that cost so much money. And the whole aspect, the point of all of this was to get them to spend their wealth so they could not hold on it. So you have more and more samurai entering into debt, more and more merchants gaining power. And so now you have this rise of Confucianism, Neo-Confucianism, and the concept of Bushido to legitimize the existence of samurai who were no longer needed to fight battles, who were basically just administrators and the federal government as such as, such as it was. Not really a federal government, but the Bakufu, you know. Um, so they began to talk about what it meant to be a samurai, why they were the they were the most moral, most ethical, most heroic. This is when you begin to get a clearer concept of Bushido. And it's and it's this it's it's almost a reflection, right? It's almost this reflect period of reflection of okay, this is where we used to be. This mm-hmm. is what we once stood for. But now right. all that is gone. And this is what it is this is what we have today, but we can never forget that this is where we once were. We were on top. You see, this, you see this in a lot of different cultures. When you see, uh, you, you see this in a lot of different cultures, particularly where we have societies that have sort of an upper nobility and then, you know, the, the lower classes. When, particularly, uh, just from my experience, in Germany, for example, we see the rise of what is called the Bildungsbürgertum, the educated middle class, uh, who, not, who are not all necessarily merchants, but they are... Uh, people that have access, have now gotten access to a formal education and now mm-hmm. have access to resources that they previously didn't have in 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 essence they now have 
access to capital, movable capital that they can now spend. Previously, they didn't possess that ability, but now that they have purchasing power, spending power, they become a force uh, in the in the economy, and they flex out a lot of the old, uh, what we would refer to as old money, uh, mm-hmm. because they're investing, they're uh, they are starting their own businesses, and and this really shifts the the chain of power. Uh, so we're seeing the same thing in the case of the samurai, uh, where you see these sort of the older nobles, the the older no, noble class, kind of going out, right? But now there's this attempt to sort of reach back real quick. It's it's almost a it, it's almost a desperate sort of plea to sort of get back what we what we're about to lose. Remind exactly. everybody how great we are, so they don't forget, right? Yeah. No. And um. And there, are some of the more famous stories and books and things arise in this period. Now. If you if you permit me, I'd I'd like to talk about a couple of them. Um, oh yes. Uh, one is called the Chu Shingura, or the Legend of the Forty Seven Ronin. When Ronin is a samurai who has essentially lost his master for one reason or another. Um, now, it refers to the different plays and other media that have been made about the legend. Of the forty-seven million, but what is the legend of that of that group? Well, what happened was uh, during the Edo Jidai, the shogun, one of the Tokugawa shoguns, uh, asked two lords, Asano and some other guy, to oversee and receive this procession that's coming in from the court. Now he has this special guy who basically tells other people. How decorum works, processes you have to undergo, what is the procedure for receiving these imperial guests. And his name is Kira. Um, Kira somehow offends Asano, the one, the first guy. Asano then attacks him inside the, the shogun's castle, uh, wounds him superficially on his face, and is then ordered to commit suicide, seppuku, immediately. And then his lands are revoked, his family is ousted, his retainers are now masterless, and they become ronin. So what they just decide to do is to wait until Kido has lowered his guard about two years later, and they assault his residence, and they kill him. They then take his severed head to the grave of their lord, Asano, and they place it in front of a grave, in which, and after doing so, they then surrender themselves to the Bakufu, the Shogunate, and say, you know, like, we know we committed this crime. We were not supposed to seek vengeance in this way. Uh, we apologize. Do with us what you will. They are ordered to commit ritual suicide, seppuku, which they do, and then they are buried and then lauded as because they debased themselves for two years to lower the guard of this guy who had offended their lord and ousted them and dishonored all of them. So this has become a really legendary tale. Um, Movies have been made about this, no-dramas, kabuki, uh, probably anime out there too. Uh, I I haven't seen it, but uh, everything. Everybody's oh yeah, and we've, seen, and we've seen reimaginings of it. We uh, what would we have the recent movie with uh, 
Clive Owen, uh, the last nights. Same, mm-hmm. same it, it is basically line by line that story. Yeah, I, I would not be surprised. I mean, it's the same thing, like you know. I mean, we uh, in Akira Kurosawa, who I mentioned before, actually basically just co-opted a bunch of Shakespearean stories and, and made somewhat I told about those. So I'm not surprised that the West has done the same thing with some of the more famous Japanese stories. Um, so what happens about this, though, is it, it talks a lot about the idea of what it means to be loyal to one's lord particularly in this time, in the Edo period, when the merchants were rising and the samurai were beginning to question their existence. And they begin to see that this is the way in which they should be acting. Um, Undying loyalty to your lord, even though he's dead, even though it really doesn't matter, even though you've been ousted, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. In fact, the main retainer, Oishi, um, or Oishi, he particularly debases himself. At one point, he has to divorce his wife and distance himself from his family because he shames himself so much that, like, other samurai see him sleeping in the street drunk. Um just, you know, telling him, like, I can't believe you call yourself a samurai, all this sort of stuff. He's doing all of this in order to disperse suspicion that he might seek revenge. And it takes them two years, but they do accomplish it. Sorry about that. I don't know why this phone keeps ringing. But, uh, right. nevertheless, uh, they do accomplish it. And in the end, they are successful, and they are lauded as heroes. Now, Another famous person from the Edo period is Yamamoto Sunetomo, who wrote the book Hagakure. Hagakure is really a compilation of Sunetomo's letters to another retainer in his own clan about what it means to be a samurai. He talks about the Chushinguro. He talks about the 47 Rodin, and he criticizes them specifically because he says they should not have waited two years if something would have happened, would have died before they were unable to enact their revenge, they would have been shamed because they were here. They were enacting a grandiose plan, plan where they would, you know, debase themselves. And if he died before they were able to pull it off, one were shitheads. I mean, excuse my language, but they wouldn't have, wouldn't have taken them seriously. Of course, they would have told people, oh, no, no, we had this big plan. We, we, we were working on it. We had to pretend like this. No one would have believed them. They would have thought it was something that they would have said after the fact. Right. Now, I can understand that. But here's the problem. Sunetomo himself wants to commit suicide, ritual suicide, when his lord dies and doesn't do so. So he's a hypocrite there. Two... His argument is essentially that it doesn't matter whether the 47 million would have succeeded or not. They should have immediately attacked. And even if their attack was easily turned turned away, which it would have been, it doesn't matter because all that matters is the act of fighting for the honor of one's lord. Whether you are successful or not means nothing. You just shouldn't do it. That, too, is a problem. Because other samurai, other daimyo, who have written other treatises hundreds of years before him, have said to die a dog's death means nothing. It brings no honor to your lord. It does him no service. It is useless. And we 
all places, an example of someone doing the opposite. The Lord, not the Lord, the general in charge of Iwo Jima, I can't remember his name, I think it's like Kitamura or something like that. Um, he is a perfect example of this. Because in World War II, they were utilizing a lot of the ideals of Bushido in their military tactics. And that meant a lot of bonsai charges, a lot of futile attempts to attack the Allies, even though you got blown to bits and did absolutely nothing. The idea was there was honor behind it. Well, this guy rejected that. He fight so much that the American commanders likened their defenses to an inchworm, where if you cut off a piece, they would just retreat and become stronger, and it was harder and harder and harder to keep cutting it off. But he did this so that the American and British forces could not continue their assault on the Japanese mainland. Was it as honorable as what they were touting about at the same time? No. But did it serve the emperor? Did it serve his lord? Absolutely it did. And that, I think, is a better example of how to follow the code of Bushido than to simply die. To go ahead and attack someone, whether or not you are successful or not, is really being more concerned about your own image, your own honor, rather than service to your Lord. Right. And it, I think it's important that you br- – I think it's really important that you brought out that distinction because uh, – and again, this is just me leaning on what I know of, of nice. Uh, in medieval Europe, uh, many of them would have agreed with you. They would have said, "That's just foolishness. You don't, you know, you don't get yourself, you don't let emotion take over. Uh, it, you are ser- you are servant of whoever you've sworn loyalty to. Emotion, your personal pride and emotions are not supposed to factor into your duty. You're supposed exactly. to serve. Uh, so, exactly. you know, for for knights, uh, they're their dishonor lay in failing, failing their Lord, failing uh, to live up to uh, the expectation that they held for themselves, which was mm-hmm. to win, to win battles, uh, to, to, and to win them honorably, to, to fight the person head on face to face and defeat them in, in, you know, single combat, uh, you know, with no underhanded tactics, although knights, of course, broke that rule as well. I mean, there, there was plenty of examples of knights sneaking into another knight's, you know, camp in the middle of the night and stabbing him in the back or something. But, exactly. uh, you know, knights, but knights would do it because it meant, you know, to hell with that, uh, we want to win. Uh, you know, they, they were all about winning and they would do anything they could to, you know, even if it meant, you know, just sort of, Bending the rules, or just you know that rule doesn't apply to me today. <laughs> exactly. Now, I mean, there's a key example of this in one of the books that I was uh, had to read. Um, it was a, it was written by Matthew Strickland. Uh, no, give me one second, was, Dallas. Do you, no problem. While you go into some of this for the for the listeners, I'm sorry. You mind if I just? Uh, take a uh, step away for just a second. I'll be right back. No, no problem. Uh, I'll be right back. Uh, one, of the, one of the texts that I was required to read was a book by Matthew Strickland about knights uh, and, the, and the expectations that knights were supposed to uphold. Now, for knights uh, in certain places, particularly in, in, the, in what we would now call the UK or Britain, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, uh, British knights, English knights, we shall say, didn't believe that the rules of knight, knighthood and honorable combat 
applied to Welshmen or Irishmen. And there is a significant uh, case of this in which one English knight is challenged to a duel uh, by, a, by an Irishman, by an Irish knight, uh, if, if you would call him that at the time, but an Irish warrior. Uh, he actually sneaks into the man's house in the middle of the night and brutally murders him. Uh, and then when his his counterparts say, what is you? Oh, my gosh, you've totally defiled your honor by killing this man in the middle of the night. You, you did a cowardly thing. He said, well, it doesn't count because he's Irish. He's not a knight. You know, only Englishmen can be knights. Everybody knows that. Uh, and uh, so it's interesting that Dan brings this point up that you have – uh, you know, the rules can sort of mean what guys that are the guys, they, they only are followed by people who really believe in the rules. They kind of make up the rules. If they don't like the rule that they have to follow, they just sort of wiggle around it or, or reinvent a rule. Uh, oh, this guy was uh, Irish, so he didn't matter. He didn't count. He wasn't really a knight because he didn't have a shiny helmet like me. Or he, yeah. he wasn't really a knight because uh, he's not a nobleman. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't count. Uh, so, Dan, what I, what I kind of mentioned was an example uh, in which Matthew Strickland points out that the, the rules of knight, honorable combat between knights didn't necessarily apply to everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. In case I cut out that view, uh, there's a case in which a British or an English knight sneaks, is challenged to a, a, a single combat by an Irishman uh, who identified as an Irish knight, whatever, uh, called himself a knight, uh, which is good enough for us. Uh, and challenged the guy to a head-to-head fight, and the English knight sneaks into his house in the middle of the night and stabs him to death in his sleep. Now, his the friends of that Irishman and individuals who knew that English knight in question said, you know, you've dishonored yourself because this guy challenged you to one-on-one combat. He challenged you in the morning. You snuck into his house in the middle of the night and stabbed him to death in his bed. That's incredibly dishonorable. You've, you know, lowered yourself, and his basic response was, well, he's Irish, he's not really a knight. Only everybody knows that, you know, you have to be English, or you have to be a nobleman to be a knight. This guy's just got a sword, he's not, you know, on my, on my level. So it's okay, because the rules don't apply to him specifically. Uh, so what I kind of mentioned there was, you know, the rules of sort of knighthood, or even, or in this case, Bushido, are kind of pliable in that you can kind of just adjust them the way you want to. It's, it's all about who's interpreting the rules. Exactly. Now, I mean, a lot of people have different opinions on these sorts of things. Now, uh, Yamamoto Tsunetomo is not the only person talking about the Chushin Guru or the only person offering critique, and other people offered critique from the other side. Uh, some people were supported there. Most of the populace uh, thought they were heroes. Um, and in fact, during the Meiji Restoration and into the Showa period, you have a lot of people using this tale specifically to talk about what it meant to be uh, a samurai and how what Bushido was, and they were linking it to Japanese society as a whole, particularly as they began their imperial and nationalistic movements. Um, leading up to the Second World War. Now, the problem with this is you have the Japanese themselves and the Allied forces and others beginning to conflate Bushido with the actions of the Japanese military at the time. They would often cite Bushido did this or the reasons for why they did that. A lot of Allied 
soldiers and, and historians and so on and so forth have said that it's because of Bushido, the Japanese committed the atrocities in the, the you know, the death march and in what they did to the American soldiers in the concentration camps. And to be honest with you, uh, prominent historians like John Dower in War Without Mercy, a wonderful book, have kind of poked at that saying it's not really the fact that they were believing in Bushido so much as that was just a really a shallow justification for their blatant racism on both sides. Uh, so people, yeah, have redefined Bushido or what they would, you know, is equivalent in the West to justify whatever the hell they wanted to do at the time. So, you know, and this is, this is very interesting that you bring that up, that they're interpreting uh, Bushido now as, as something different, right, uh, mm-hmm. in, in this context, right? This is a new, this is a new interpretation. You, you're going to go out and you're going to, you're going to go out and you're going to kill these people because, and you're, or you're going to die trying because that's the way yeah. we do things here. To, to an extent. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter if we win. We must. We must let them know that we we run shit now, uh, yeah. you know, and well, and I, we're not back down because, because they're you know, here and doesn't matter if we we're gonna win we're gonna make this as cruel and and a painstaking process for them as we possibly <laughs> freaking can. There is no retreat. Yeah, I, I would say that's actually not Bushido itself telling. What people would then like later claim, like the, uh, there's a book by Iris Chang, I think called The Rape of Nanking, and she mentions Bushido as being the influence or the impetus behind the atrocities uh, that the people of Nanking suffered at the hands of the Japanese military. Now, anybody who reads any, any treatise on Bushido or, or samurai behavior could tell you immediately that that's not at all what's happening. I mean, the Japanese military had simply just kind of lost it, and they were fairly racist in their assumptions, and they did not see the um, They did not see them as being equal to them. I mean, we in the West can certainly understand how that racist rhetoric works, because we are certainly guilty oh, of it. Yes. Um, so that's what was going on there. A lot of times, Bushido had changed during the Meiji and uh, Taisho and Showa eras to become a unifying force, a hegemony, if you will, uh, to in order to establish a cultural and national identity in the Japanese. Because the West had chivalry to harken back right. to in ancient times. So the Japanese said, well, we can. So you have writers like Nitobe Inazo, who is essentially an, an economist, uh, who would also a Quaker, believe it or not, uh, who was part of the League of Nations uh, in the 1910s, he wrote while he was sick about Bushido. He wrote Bushido of the Soul of Japan. That was his famous book. And he spends most of it essentially saying to the West, look, we've got chivalry too. We're just like you. We should be accounted among, you know, civilized nations. The problem Japanese people and associating Bushido or the idea of Bushido with the Japanese populace as a whole, not 
specifically the samurai. People like Yamamoto Sunitomo would roll in their graves if they knew that the idea that they had basically tried to solidify in order to separate the samurai from the general was being used to unify now. Yeah, it was being used now to unify all of the Japanese. They would have been pissed. But nevertheless, that's how things change. And that's how, you know, yeah, and it's interesting you bring that up because you bring up chivalry. And, you know, we, you know, now, you know, modern, more modern contemporary, uh, you know, concepts, conceptualizations, I should say, of chivalry are like nowhere, anywhere near what early, what early conceptualizations of chivalry were. Uh, you know, we think of chivalry now as you're a gentleman and you, you, you know, you hold the door open for a lady and you use uh, fancy language and you're polite and mannerly. In reality, uh, chivalry simply comes from the term chevalier, which meant to fight on horseback. Uh, and it later <clears throat> develops, there later develops these ideas about what it means to uh, be chivalrous. That is, uh, that you take on certain qualities as as a as this person in this new growing developing knightly class, if you will, that separate you from the rest of society, and it is very clear, in, at least in the medieval European context, that not everybody could be a knight. Mm-hmm. There's not you know you don't just become a knight. You 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 are not you were trained, you were groomed, you were born to be a knight. Uh, and they make it very clear, and and these these rules that they have they change depending on who you talk to, and everybody had their own version of chivalry, and and it's just a big mess. That's why chivalry is you know is is a term that I really think is kind of problematic in comparing to bushido, not because uh, you know because of the complexity of oh well that's all these different things, but because. Uh, medieval Europeans you probably couldn't have told you what the hell chivalry was either. Yeah, and <laughs> they probably couldn't have told you. I think because I uh, I guess I'll transition now into talking about something else I mentioned in some of my works uh, is that a lot of people confuse Bushido, I think, with Giri. Giri is a general sense of duty in Japan that everyone feels. Uh, Giri means like you, there are certain things that you do in general society to be polite. There are certain things that you do not do because they are impolite, obviously. And uh, a lot of times, people often do something out of a Giri. And then that is interpreted as something being close to Bushido. And it has gotten worse as Bushido has been conflated with general Japanese society rather than being seen as a distinct form of Giri or a distinct class of the Japanese at a very distinct period in time. Because um, everyone has Giri. All throughout history, all Japanese people have had Giri. In fact, you could probably the same, say the same thing for all people throughout history in the world. We just wouldn't. Everyone has this idea of social decorum. Right. What difference right. is owed to other people? And so that is very, like, it's understood innately 
in Japan. Um, I, I would, when I was there, I mean, there were certain things, certain cues you would just pick up on, certain things that were said. Like, for instance, my Japanese isn't what it used to be, but nevertheless, one of the easy ways to get out of going someplace or doing something with someone and just saying, Yoji ga aru dagara. Yoji ga aru means I have a thing to do. Is very vague. It's not specific at all. And in the story, <laughs> accept it. If you said to someone, say, hey, man, you want to come out on Saturday night? Oh, I'm sorry. I have a thing and or things to do. They'd be like, what the fuck? I mean, sorry, excuse me. What are you talking about? Why do you mean? Why do you, what do you mean you have things to do? What things? What thing do you have to do? We would never let it go. But in Japan, the, they're like, oh, okay. Never mind. Then I'll stop asking. I'll stop inquiring. I won't think about it. You know, clearly you're busy, or at the very least you're saying no without saying no. So everybody saves so space. It's much easier to blow people off in Japan than it is here. <laughs> yes, it can be. And they just accept that. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not, not going to just say, "Now nah, I know this guy's just a dick and he's making excuses." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, more often than not. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it helps if you can recognize those signals and realize, like, okay, this person clearly doesn't want to do this for whatever reason. They're not going to tell me. That's fine. I don't care. I'm going to go about my life. Um, but, and that's I think in of how those societal things work. But we've confused them. We, we have a very simplified view of how Japanese culture functions. And so a lot of times we'll, we'll attribute loyalty to one's company, loyalty to one's family, loyalty to one's friends as something beholden to Bushido, when it, it isn't at all related to that. It's in fact connected to Giri, which is something that's very alive and very well and much more hard to define. Well, and I think and I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because when we think about Japanese culture, we do we think about honor, right? We think about you know this this loyalty that you talk about, this uh, this duty, this you know sort of almost a rigidness to it. But in reality, uh, these things we're projecting these things. These things exist in our culture as well. These ideas that you're responsible. We call it here. We don't call it duty. We call it responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. we say you have a responsibility to your family. Yes, you have a responsibility to your job. You have a responsibility to the things that you do. Uh, there is a certain, or there's expectations. They, there are expectations surrounding you. Exactly. We have an expectation of a standard that you have to uphold, uh, and it's interesting that there's almost this sense of putting. This concept, at least in the context of Japanese culture, on almost a on almost a pedestal, right? This idea that oh well, that's in Japan. They they're all about honor and duty and loyalty and glory and all that stuff. Uh, they're exactly heightened. That's heightened over there. That's that. Now, that's that high, high class duty over responsibilities over there. <laughs> and it's funny because I mean, and in some ways, I suppose that makes some sense. Like you hear about the zangyo uh, shukatsu lifestyle, where people essentially work for their company for sixty to eighty hours plus. Um, supposedly, it's, it's acceptable to fall asleep at your desk in your office because you're overworked. That just shows that you're working so hard. Uh, I 
don't necessarily believe that one all the way. But nevertheless, the idea of working yourself to the bone, I think in America lends itself to this idea of a Japanese society works this way. When in fact, it's not really that different. I mean, there are of course are of course differences, but one of the things I've about the globe is that they're more often than not have reverse culture shock. I call it because things are a lot more similar than what I thought they would be. Because we have, like you said, like this idea of how these cultures work. We read our own assumptions onto them, when in fact that's not really the case. It's interesting uh, that you that you bring that out. One of the things, and this leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask about this appropriation of the concept of Bushido by the West. I want to talk about that a little bit more. Fascinating that you brought that up uh, in some of your research, that there is almost an appropriation, an attempt to sort of tap into the concept of Bushido by countries in the West. There is. Um, A lot of times, it's either, well, not so much these days, because people are beginning to change, you're reading more, they're being more educated. They're realizing that these are not specifically the reasons, like I said, that led to World War II that were the impetus for some of the atrocities committed therein. It was more or less the justification for those atrocities. It was more or less the justification. They're starting some of those conflicts for their pushing imperially. But we could say the same thing for the West. I mean, we said about ourselves the same thing as the Japanese are saying about themselves. We taught them how to do that, how to justify your atrocities through this some sort of heavenly mandate. Now, that being said, nowadays it's changing really more towards an Orientalist sense, in the sense of you know the whole Edward Saidian idea, um, particularly for my option paper was uh, video games and tabletop games. Um, you have this romanticization of the East, particularly Japan. And they utilize Bushido as a way to kind of flatten Japanese history and Japanese society. And they say, like, oh, here are these, you know, main points. This is what they were. This is the main thing to focus on. And we're just going to run with that. And some of them make small attempts to admit that they are painting a very broad picture and that they are uh, but nevertheless they continue to, to enable this conceptualization of Bushido and Japanese culture and samurai culture in popular society and I you know it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things I wanted to flesh out was was how uh, you know the interpretations of these of different cultures in this way and this orientalizing of the East. And when we say orientalizing, for people that don't know, if you're not familiar, you need to take a look at the book Orientalism by Edward Said. And yes, I'm going to name drop because it's a <laughs> fascinating study. It's a fascinating study of how people in the countries uh, in the Western part of the world, and when I say Western part of the world, I mean people in the United States, in Europe, uh, and even even places 
to to some degree, even later on, you might even argue places like Turkey uh, and and countries in that area of the world as well. Most how white they, people, yeah, well, that's much that's something later though. Um, but but how they have come to conceptualize what they perceive to be this other part of the world, this almost very foreign. Uh, this this sense of a very foreign culture, how uh, they're they're so much different than we are. It's the other end of the world. It's they're darker. They're you know even if they're not darker skin, uh, because apparently uh, you know early early uh, scholars, particularly from France and Germany, thought everybody in other parts of the world was dark skin, even if they weren't. Oh, Japanese people, they got to be dark. They're over there in that east. It, once you once you go that once you go over there, you start you know your skin starts to darken. You start speaking gibberish. It's crazy over there. Uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. an interesting study in how they have uh, how they formulated their own view of the world and how that still impacts us today. You find yourself today still having to sort of separate that way of thinking from approaching different cultures. You find yourself doing that all the time. It's amazing that you brought up this, this fact, the fact that you had almost like a reverse culture shock. Like you came over there and you're like, oh my God, you guys really don't cut off each other's heads over here? I mean, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, I mean, you don't kill people over dishonor over here? Like, what's going on? No, no. In fact, to be honest, culture shock for me was when I first showed up in Tokyo uh, back in 2006, I expected there to be a lot more "quote unquote" traditional Japanese architecture, and I was not seeing it. I mean, like except for the time I went to the Imperial <laughs> Palace. When I went to the Imperial Palace, I saw some old storehouses, and I'm like, okay, there we go. That looks like what I expected. That looks like a like a, like a castle, you know. But everything else was it basically looked like a modern city that you'd see in the U.S. I was, Tokyo is kind of like an Uglier, most part. <laughs> you were like, where's um, the, you're like, where's the castles? Where's the fortresses? Come on, man. Yeah, well, where's going on the, yeah, I'm not seeing anything <laughs> culture like except for Asakusa, which is has like a, it's, it's big market streets and a big temple. I mean, uh, you see some traditional looking stuff there, but for the most part, there's skyscrapers everywhere and apartment buildings that go up like 25 stories and it stretches <laughs> out for miles and miles and miles. So you're you're going out and you're like all I see is modern stuff, That's urban sprawl. That's called yeah, progress, and, Oh, I know <laughs> their Wi-Fi is crap and <laughs> like barely any buried land uh, wires. So there there are, there are power lines crisscrossing the sky. If you like that sort of Blade Runner esque style. And Tokyo is a great place to go. So is Osaka. But if you prefer a more traditional Japan, quote unquote, then uh, Kyoto, the old capital, is absolutely the place to be. Kyoto is so beautiful. I mean, from places like Sanju Sangendo to the famous Kyomizu Dera, those are incredible. Sanju Sangendo is famous because it has a hall. I think it's Sanju Sangen. I think it's 3,000 different statues, each one of them individually carved. I mean, it's incredible. And then Kyo Mizuzeta is a really, really famous temple that was just 
super high up. I mean, there's a famous saying, like, to leap from a stage of kill me to death, which is weird because you'd probably kill yourself if you leapt from that stage because uh, it's so high up. It's beautiful there. Nevertheless, um, I the trend of orientalizing different cultures because of the idea of that these people are different from us. When once we, we always assume that when we get to their place, like it's going to be, oh, this is crazy different experience. And then it's, it's shocking how much yeah, of human you go, nature. You go, into it, you, you, you go into it and you're like, there's going to be rickshaw carts. Uh, everybody's going to be in these robes. It's going to be awesome. I, I saw, mm-hmm. I, I watched the last samurai. That's all I need to know. It's going to be great. It's going to be just like that. People will bow to me when I come in. Yeah, which is weird because I mean, like, if I want to meet the emperor because I'm important. Because I'm from one of those, I'm from one of those countries of white people. So they're going to invite me to go meet the emperor, obviously, because they've never seen anything like me before. I'm very, I'm very important. Well, and that's and that's something that you see in the movie Jackass because in Jackass they go to Japan, and one of my favorite things about that movie is how the Japanese people just do not care at all that they are there. I mean, they're they're out in Tokyo and they're trying to like raise a scene or make people like gasp and shock and nobody cares. And I'm like, yeah, that seems about right. Because the Japanese have seen it, man. Do not care. It's just like they don't have time. No. We just got What? Gotta work those Uh, sixty hours so you can get that nap. Oh, but other parts of the culture, um, the idea of the samurai, the idea of bushido, like it, it's is prevalent in society. I mean, they have historical dramas on TV, damn near constantly, um, and different types of plays and other media depict samurai and these same stories of Oda Nobunaga, the three unifiers of Japan. All the time. In fact, a lot of the video games I talk about when I try to do my final paper for my master's was uh, uh, I don't think I talked about Onimusha much. The Onimusha series talks about obviously Oda Nobunaga, um, the first of the three, and then you have other series like Kessen uh, that depicts a lot of the famous battles, like particularly uh, the first one talks about Sekigahara. And Arise of Tokugawa Ieyasu. The third one talks about Oda Nobunaga, and it kind of explores uh, counterfactual history, examining that survived. And then you have other things like there's actually a, an old D&D manual, an advanced Dungeons and Dragons manual that looks at the Orient and incorporates a lot of this sort of mysticism and like, concepts of Bushido and samurai culture and everything. Um, interestingly enough, that seems to be the one that's the least problematic of some of the things I've looked at, but still, uh, so these, these games are interesting because they present like this really modern sense of what Samurai were like, what Oda Nobunaga was like, um, and they don't offer a lot of nuanced views on this and they don't try to preface themselves as much. So I have to ask, Dan, you talk about some of these video games recently, and I don't know how familiar you are with this, but I'd have to ask you about this. Recently, they came out with a game called For Honor. 
interestingly <sighs> enough, there's there's three kinds of soldiers you can be in this game. Uh, you can be a knight, you can be a Viking, or you can be a samurai. Interestingly yeah. enough, the samurai in the game, a lot of their perks relate to a lot of the sort of these things that you talk about. You know, they get uh, boosts to their, uh, they get boosts to their uh, their health if they perform what is called an honorable execution in the game. Oh, really? Not really sure what an honorable execution constitutes, but I'm kind of wondering, you know, if you've seen any of this or what's your take on some of that uh, in relation to what we've talked about, you know, this appropriation of, of Bushido and some of these Western interpretations, I mean, because they get, uh, they get this health bonus if they perform an honorable execution. Uh, they you know, get, uh, yeah, they get, uh, they have certain uh, skills, uh, like uh, it's it's like a rally. They they have a certain skill that if they uh, if they perform like a if they perform a, a critical attack, uh, all of their enemies must tre- you know tremble for you know x amount of time in awe of their you know greatness or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. But no, see that's that's interesting. I actually have heard of that game. I have not yet had the time to examine it. Um, I will utilize it as primary source material for any sort of research, but I would very, very much like to, um, particularly because I saw it. I think it's on Steam, is it not? Uh, I believe it is. It's, I know it's on PlayStation 4. I actually have a copy of it myself. And to be honest with you, what you'll find particularly interesting about this game is that there are three separate quest lines. You could play as the Knights first, then you play as the Vikings, then you play as the Samurai. But the game itself, the storyline, is completed by the Samurai, and the Samurai have to win the game, and it's the Emperor's champion hmm. who has to fight the big bad guy at the end. Hmm. Interesting. And interestingly enough, before he can do it, he has to unify all the Samurai daimyo. <laughs> Of course. Before yeah. they can go and get their army together and go attack this enemy. But first he's got to put down all these rebelling daimyo who have betrayed him and gotten him in jail to begin with. And so now he's got to fight his way back and, quote, unquote, reclaim his honor. Oh, of course, of course. Now, it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know if anybody out there has played uh, Victoria or Victoria 2, or uh, Europa Universalis. And I'm not sure yeah. exactly which, which series it is. I think it's, I think it's, it's Europa Universalis 3, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, you cannot win the game unless... It might be Victoria 2. Regardless, you cannot win the game until Japan, as Japan, unless you have modernized You've undergone the process of westernization, and that is a problem because that is suggesting <laughs> that unless Japan has done what the West told it to, it was never going to win. Like, under its own merits, it could not have come up with something equal to, but different from westernization or modernization as we have come to understand it. 
And that's well, an issue. You know, and then like this yeah, game sounds like it's also having you like, oh no, 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 you have to you have to follow the, the stereotypical prince of what the meta narrative has said history is like for Japan, so you have to conquer all the time. History <laughs> who the hell knows what could have happened? It's it's hysterical because at, at the beginning, uh, you know, in, what I thought particularly interesting is, you know, at the beginning of the game, you play as these knights, and they push out these Vikings, who are, of course, the horrible raiders that are always attacking everybody all the time. They push these oh, knights. The knights push them. The knights are so honorable, and they push the the push the Vikings back. But then they leave the Vikings with no food, and say, "Okay, well, that's it. You know, you learned your lesson. We're going to starve you out, and you pro- there will be no repercussions for this action." And of course, the raiders, the Vikings being the fact that they've been marauding and raiding this whole time and now have been starved, they decide, well, we're going to take everything. We're going to have to invade everybody again because we now have nothing to eat. Yeah. I mean, what do you expect to happen? (laughs) Yeah. So, of course, now the whole quest line with the Vikings becomes, okay, now we're going to pillage the knights. We're going to get a fleet of ships together, and we're going to attack Japan because the Japanese people are smaller than us. They're puny. And they're not going to see us coming. Besides, they're at war with each other. They're not going to be ready for us anyway. And, of course, the Viking quest line has, by the way, got Vikings who should have no chance at all against some of the guys that they are fighting who clearly have superior technology, I might add. Yeah, but, I'm a little surprised Yeah, how the Vikings <laughs> from, like, a really early period are going to be fighting Japan and they're supposedly at war with each other when the Sengoku Jidai doesn't really happen for like another couple hundred years. But... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is in an... Uh, we have to keep in mind this is in an alternate sort of universe. But... They still That's have a neat way. They still have... Clearly have superior technology. Their swords are better. Uh, you know, they've got... They've got... Uh, poison and they've got uh, minor artillery and things like that stuff that the Vikings do not have oh jeez <laughs> you're expected to believe through the Viking quest line that you can you can raid the imperial city <laughs> you raid the imperial city Dan okay the quest, samurai, the quest line for the samurai begins with you breaking out of a prison cell because the, the vicious Daimo betrayed you because you were so honorable that they just didn't want you around because you were a threat to their influence and power, of course. Uh-huh. And you, you get your buddies together, and you push the Vikings out, and then you go deal with those pesky Daimo because the Emperor is too busy to do it, I guess, for some reason. You're, you're, you're the guy that's got to handle everything. But, it's, but you're restoring your honor, Dan. got to restore your honor because you... <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Oh, jeez. Well, it's funny because I mean, like, I need you and see your take on that. Uh, that whole quest line of we're gonna restore our honor through. First, I've got to unify this whole country. <laughs> well, and, and, and it just it just gets linked. Like, it's just. Yeah, the samurai culture just gets simplified so much over so much time. Like, and everybody just takes it the foregone conclusion that this is the way things were gonna go. Um, from and there, there are a host of issues arise from small ones such as like 
people misunderstanding types of armor and when they would have arisen to big things like how this would have affected society and how Japanese to be Japanese and Japanese culture in general and how that works. Um, so it's really problematic and it's unfortunate, but it's just it just continues to this day. I mean, you you have video games like uh for PlayStation One there was Bushido Blade, uh, which was I'll admit a really fun game, but you're playing in like this myriad of characters that and some of them are even Western and it, it makes really like the storyline doesn't make much sense. Um, but the rules of the game where you're not allowed to attack somebody from behind and there are other things in order to like be successful in the storyline based on this arbitrary superficial interpretation of what Bushido was. Um, even though really no one ever had ever been able to clearly delineate what Bushido is. <laughs> so, well, don't forget Civ. Civ, where apparently Bushido is like a technological development. Yes, that's an, that's another thing that's interesting. It's like I, I wrote about the Civilization games in, in my thing, and like the Civilization series is, is problematic in that it, it is very meaning that this is a series that assumes certain things will always be the case about certain quote-unquote civilizations, certain societies, and how history works in general. Like, you cannot achieve universal suffrage unless you do such and such. You, the Japanese, will always have Bushido, no matter whether they found Christianity or whether they yeah. have control of a landmass that is the size of South America. I mean, it, to them, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and and the thing that I really want to point out with, uh, with the Civ games, what's particularly problematic is there's these assumptions that there's a step-by-step process, right, that it's the blueprint for every country reaching mm-hmm. its modernity. You know, yeah, okay, so every country has to have knights, even if they didn't have them. Even if their culture never had knights, even if they skipped that whole period, never went into knights, when we get to the medieval period, everybody gets knights. You get a knight, you get a knight. Yeah, we all get one. about it. Yeah, we, we all get one. Even though Russia really didn't have knights, well, they had Cossacks at one point, but they weren't knights. They get knights. Medieval times. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> That's exactly uh, uh, one of the professors who's now the head of the history department at the University of Africa, Dr. Wainwright, Dr. A. Martin Wainwright, um, has done a lot of research on this, and he specifically looks at and utilizes the Civilization series in his courses and in his own publications to talk about this. Um, the United States and Britain, like, culturally, is their racial bonus that they have certain things like they're going to oh well you you are industrious or you get bonuses to trade when in fact like if this game was really allowing you to create a civilization from scratch you would not necessarily do that um yeah. like the Az- the Aztecs are always given bonuses to their early game but not but they're really really weak in the late game cuz it is assumed based on their 
paltry knowledge of how history works, that the Aztecs would have died out, of course, no matter what, because they were right. society. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, who knows what they could have developed and what they would have done? Well, and I, I think it's interesting. You know, you point out the aspects of the same thing with the Zulu. And, I mean, even after a certain period, the Arabs in, in the civilization games, they're, they they start to back off. You know, they have like a high time in the Middle Ages. That's their time in the mm-hmm. game. And, and you notice that certain cultures that are covered in these games, they have a, they have a time where it's their high time. This is the time that they're going to – this is the time they'll make their big push in game. But then after that, oh, well, you know. Whatever. Yeah, they're done. I mean, if you're, you're technologically outpaced by have, Spain, uh, which really is Spain. Yeah. Spain setting the world on fire over here with technological advancements, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then they'll, they'll do something that's just tongue in cheek, of course. Like, obviously, it's a joke from the developers that Gandhi nukes everybody in Civilization Four. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. But for the most part, they do reinforce a lot of accepted ideas of how history works in their gameplay. And that's something that uh, ludology or game studies is really pushing. Um, Rhetoric. This idea that doing something again and again and again and watching this procedure reinforces this rhetoric, this discourse, this idea of what something is. What tr- like truths uh, become instilled in the player, kind of like if someone is playing a I don't know some shooting game, like a Call of Duty esque game, and you have a bunch of insurgents who are Muslim, and you are playing as some sort of a allied character, United States or uh, United Kingdom or something, and you you constantly have to engage with these people who are using tactics to win. It reinforces in your head like this idea like these people aren't honorable. These people aren't doing what's proper. They're doing all of this cheap crap. And so then the player then through procedure begins to accept this cultural construction of this society, of this society that is not their own. Um, and the same thing what? happens in these games like Civilization. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I'm really glad you brought that up something I wanted to flesh out with our discussion because I found that your uh, examination of how Bushido is being interpreted in video games is sort of, it's, oh, it's a given. Japan, of course, they got, you know, done. Yeah, they get it. It's their perk. It's their, it's their thing. Got to be in there. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's interesting that, you know, there's this imposition, right? There's this set of assumptions that, oh, well, of course, because, yeah, because, it's ninjas and samurai and Japan and yeah, just obviously, yeah. You know who cares if they? Who cares if they did? You know, discovered space flight ninjas, right? You know, yeah. They, they get, <laughs> it's given. So uh, it's in that we see sort of assumption the, these assumptions associated with with various cultures, uh, and it's exactly what Edward Said gets at with his theory of Orientalism in that uh-huh. when we look at these other cultures that we are trying to control, we're not just trying to control the, we're, you know, our ancestors, the people that came before us, you know, the generations that came before us were, were determined not to, were determined with the idea that if they could define something, well, be able to 
to be able to define what something was meant you had power over that something. Right. If I tell you what Japan is, I have I I can tell you that I have knowledge of what that place is. And by defining that place, by defining the people in that place, I am asserting my superiority, my dominance over that place because I am defining it on the map. Exactly. I, am you, uh, I am telling you that there are a set of ideas that you cannot disassociate from the place that I just identified for you. Uh, and that is, in essence, what we're getting at here with our discussion of you know how Bushido specifically is being appropriated uh, and being implemented in in things like film, media, video games, and in popular culture, whether it be literature or or anime or what have you. This idea that you fleshed out is fantastic, by the way. It's it's great stuff because yeah. it reminds us uh, of the dangers that we face by making assumptions about things that we don't necessarily have a good grasp of or a good concept of the meaning behind the terms we're using. Exactly. So I want to that and, and ask you, what do you think the significance of, of this appropriation of Bushido really is in not only the implications for Japanese culture and people of Japan and Japan itself, as far as history and, and, and moving forward go, but what do you think the significance is for us? Well, it's tricky because I think it, for us, it enables us and our flattened view of other cultures. I mean, I remember specifically through history courses through all the way up through high school where you have a really nuanced view, such as it is, of U.S. history. Now, you and I know, of course, that it's not really that nuanced. It's mostly big man, top-down history. Um, right. A couple hundred years outdated. Nevertheless, they talk a lot about the details and the differing aspects of American society and how those things work. And for other parts of the world, they get short shrift. And this acceptance of how history, uh, particularly other cultures, are one-dimensional, it flattens their history. They are no longer seen as dynamic. They are no longer seen as equally as complex as human, by extension, as we are. Now, some people might say I'm taking that to an extreme, and perhaps they might be correct, but I don't think that I am. Because failing to recognize that everyone else's history is as complex as ours is failing to recognize the fullness of their humanity. And until we that every country, every culture is as sophisticated as ours is. We are beginning, we are not fully recognizing the humanity and the history of the other people around us. Now, Japan itself, I think, is also limiting its scope and misinterpreting itself if it is associating Bushido and Samurai culture with the entirety of Japanese society. Now, I don't think that the Japanese are doing this, but those who are are committing that problem. 
And I love the way you said that. The way that you phrased that was perfect. By not being willing to accept that other cultures and other countries have complex histories, some of them more complex than our own history in some cases. Yeah. We are we are shortchanging them, but we're also shortchanging ourselves because we're not we're missing out. We're mm-hmm. missing out on, on key parts of human history. Yeah. We we are painting these broad strokes and we're missing out on some gold. Um, you know, who knows parts of our own history. Yeah, these are parts of our history as a whole. Uh, and it's to me I find it I find it really uh quite refreshing that you bring this up. Because this is something that a lot of people don't think about when we talk about history. You know, people will ask me, they're like, well, German history, you know, what good is that? You know, who cares about that? Or, you know, Japanese, you know, some people might say, you know, Dan does Japanese history. I mean, this is America. I mean, really, isn't that the only history I need to know? But, I mean, what if down the line you find out you have Japanese relatives? I mean, we all are, are part of this this great beast that is human that is that is humanity and somewhere down the line we're all somewhat connected mm-hmm. you know, we're all part of this one one species and to ignore these these various parts of our history because they may not seem uh, sexy enough for whatever <laughs> reason i don't know if that's maybe the term we want to go with but i mean i'm gonna stick with it um but we're, we're shortchanging ourselves, and we're we're really taking away an opportunity for us to understand other people and their perspective. Uh, so I really like the fact that you brought up that we're kind of by by ignoring this, we're we're dehumanizing people. Even if it is, even if it's unintentional, it's still a dehumanization because we're selling them short. Exactly. Exactly. There's a game on Steam. Um, that is similar to those in scope of a Victoria and you're opening a Versailles called Sengoku, I believe. And it, in its manual, when it teaches you how to play the game, makes references to Japan and the Japanese and the samurai uh, that are offensive somewhat in nature because it talks about how people would make treaties and so on and so forth. The Japanese did not do this or the samurai did not do this and blah, blah, blah. And it paints them as being more violent and more barbaric in nature when in fact like that's not necessarily the case i mean like people broke trees and never paid attention to them in the first place in europe constantly like what, is, oh, what who, yeah who are you talking about but a lot of those sometimes, games, they, didn't, sometimes they didn't even make trees dan yeah i mean sometimes they didn't even sign the paper they just got them in the room and killed them then yeah i mean <laughs> I, I i remember Sid Meier, the creator of a civilization games, does have a bachelor's degree in history. And now, okay. this, now, I will say that as much as I love the college experience, I think it is incredibly valuable. Sometimes it's not. And you definitely do not need to go to college to learn these things. Anybody can pick up these books and educate themselves. Don't get me wrong. However, Sid Meier had been trained as a historian, to a degree, when he made his game. And I think that it shows, because the way in which he tries to spread 
in most of his games is indicative of someone who has studied how those forces work. Now, as opposed to that, the creators of Victoria 2 and Europa Universalis are not especially uh, historically inclined because they have this idea that you must follow a historical narrative that has been laid down by prominent white men, specifically people who come out of Oxford or Harvard, who are telling you how things happened as they really occurred. So for them, it's much, much harder. That has to undergo this modernization, this westernization, before it can actually win the game, which is bullshit. Is bullshit because who the I mean China was steps away from industrialization like way before the U.S. or the uh, Great Britain was going to do so. They had a very profitable cottage industry of its own, but this circumstance did not occur for that. Now, who's to say that for some crazy reason in Japan they developed? weapons first. Who's to say that they don't develop industrialization first? If you were really going to make a game that was historically accurate, you would be able to play as a nondescript group of people who developed a nondescript religion, who developed modernization on your own terms and your own definition. Now the problem with that is is that would be immensely difficult to set up. I mean, the the guys who made Spore already dropped that ball. So if anybody was going to make it <laughs> accurate in terms of process, they got their work cut out for them. Yes, they do. They definitely do. And you know, Dan, it's it's really it's really telling to me that you bring up the fact that there, there's this there's this uh, connection between westernization and modernization. Uh, the idea that, you know, if you're modern, then you westernize. You, you became more Western. Uh, you can't mm-hmm. become, you can't become more modern on your own. No, 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 no. Exactly. no. You, mm-hmm. If you're not in the West, you're not modern on your own. No, no. You've got to take the Western ideas. But an important thing for us to point out here is, you know, what steps do you have to take towards modernity? Uh, that could be considered Western, because if we think about this, and if we think about it really long and hard, we, we look at empires such as the Spanish Empire or the English Empire, who probably don't get as far as they did without the advention of the Latin sail, which comes from, you know, the East. It comes, it comes from the Arabs. They invented the Latin sail. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's implemented by you know, the British and the Spanish later, and they realized, oh, my gosh, these sails will carry our ships much farther now. Yeah, but, and, it, uh, and, and, and another example, uh, we think about uh, guns. Guns are often seen as, oh, this is a Western thing. People don't realize this. A lot of people don't talk about it, but China had gunpowder. They had forms of guns well before uh, some Western countries did. Uh, they had fireworks. They had they had they had gunpowder. The India the people of India they had guns. They had mm-hmm. cannon uh, before the British arrived. Uh, there's an assumption that oh well you know people don't start to get technological advancements until the West arrives and then then they borrow everything from us. When in re- when in fact 
oftentimes the opposite happens to be the case. Yeah, I mean, we see that be that, that that there is a there is a much different story being told by history than what we're given today. Oh, absolutely, because everything is generally, particularly in the West, set up to special specialize the West. I mean, like we we are presented in this way that makes us seem like we are somehow unique rise to us when in fact it was not um but you're right i mean zhong he uh the chinese admiral was sailing with ships that were many times the size of columbus's ship the santa maria i mean he was sailing in to, to the east coast of africa and and visiting cultures there um no one really knows why those expeditions stopped as far as i know but uh, the Chinese could have easily usurped the British as masters of the seas. Never, right. That's the idea. Of that, that, that breaks the idea there. That because Britain was an island nation, they developed boats, and then they had cannon, and so on and so forth, and so on and so forth. And you're right. I mean, there's this idea that you have to adhere to this Western form this Western process of modernization in order for it to count. And that's ridiculous. Because of- it, it is ridiculous because if we think about it, and, you know, and the points you just raised just reinforce what I've already said is that you know, some of these countries were already, some of these places were already considered in their own time to be modern. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're, they're, they're already considering themselves to be modern. Yeah. Modernity it's itself true. is a Western invention. Like, yeah. The idea of like what it means to be modern. Yeah. 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 You had people in China if that during this time in which they are a maritime power, if they're if they consider themselves to be modern, they would have told you, We're the we're we're a kingdom from we're the kingdom we're a kingdom of heavens. We're, our emperor is lord of heaven and earth. Yeah, and that's why um counterfactual history is something that's very interesting to explore. There are at least two books called What If the subtitle, but uh, I read parts of the second book and it explores certain questions like what if Socrates never died or what if Socrates did die in the, in the battle he recounts or what if Jesus never died or what if this or what if that and it asks a lot of interesting questions and it changes the course of history and it shows and it helps one understand the events that we do accept as fact. And two, it helps understand what could have occurred. And that, in turn, enables us to appreciate greater the cultures that existed at that time rather than through our own definitions. You know, and and things like that, I think those are valuable, valuable tools for us. Uh, because they remind us that, you know, how different things can really be. I mean, we look at some events that we consider to be very pivotal events in human history. And, you know, we as historians get this opportunity to say, you know, we, we tend to deal predominantly in, okay, this is the event. Here's who was involved. This is the, this is what happened. This is the result. Okay. Let's, you know, this is, we've broken it down step by step. Now let's get into details. Let's find out what the experience of the people was during this time, during this event, what led up to it, and the results and the impact. 
uh, and so on and so forth. But we also get to be on that edge of, could you imagine if it had gone the other way? And you can't help but, but feel like, you know, those kinds of exercises can really, you know, when you really look at all, the, all, all of the facts of an event and you, and you puzzle it all out, you look at all the factors that, that caused an event to happen, you can't help but think, what if, you know, what if Napoleon had been successful in his invasion of Russia? You know, what would have happened? You know, what would exactly. have happened if he had lost at Waterloo? You know, where, where would we be? What would, what were, would we have, would we, would we see Europe under, under the banner of France to this day? I mean, you know, the kinds of que- these are the kinds of questions that come to mind, but they're, you know, they, to some, they would seem to be silly. Oh, you know, that's, that's, you know, alternative history. That's just funny. You know, uh, you know, that would have never happened. There's no way of predicting, but, but it, it forces us to ask the question, pivotal certain events are in human history. Mm-hmm. It gives you a new of the event itself and those involved in the event. So I, I think you bring up a very valid point that this that, that that is a very good exercise to get into when you look at certain events. Of, but imagine if it had gone different. Uh, keeping yeah. your mind open is, is, is a good way of understanding not only the the importance and significance of a certain event and those involved in the event, but it's a good way of under, of realizing that, in fact, you know, yes, history is is essentially, you know, ostensibly, uh, quote-unquote, written in stone, but it's still important to remember that history at one time was a present. And for the people that experiencing that moment, it wasn't so cut and dry. You know, exactly. It wasn't so cut and dry. This is the way things are going to happen now. You know, they lived in a time. They live in the same. They lived in the same way in which we lived. Like we don't know what how what tomorrow brings. We don't live. We don't live knowing that tomorrow. You know, we'll be at war with another country. But it could happen. You know, then when it happens, we're like, oh my God, we're at war with another. You know, we're at war with this country. It's the same. We we now tend to take that for granted. We tend to think, oh, it's history, and everybody knew that that was going to happen that way. And it's the song and dance go through the motion sort of thing. That oh, you know, we tend to think mm-hmm. about history in this way now. You know, so for people when they look at Japanese history, they think, well, of course they had you know samurai, and everybody knew that they had a job to do. And wasn't that just dandy and quaint and lovely? Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's the way it was. <laughs> and I think it harkens back to essential people have. Like, I have a, a, a job I recently had uh, working at a warehouse. There's a kid there who was, I think, 19, 20 years old. He was moving through college um, on his way for, uh, he wanted to be a doctor. And he was asking me, like, oh, you, I told him I got a master's in history. And he's like, okay, so history is pretty easy, right? I mean, it's basically just memorizing fact. And I told him no, right. because there is no fact. And he was like, well, well, I don't, what? And he looked at me kind of blankly for a second. I'm like, because as the Hellenists dictated, particularly Pyro of the skeptics, you cannot know anything truly. Because in order to test 
your knowledge of something. You need to test that thing empirically through your senses. But in order to be rely on your senses, you need to be able to test them empirically. But you have no method of doing so except with your senses. Ergo, you cannot logically, safely test your senses. Therefore, you may not trust them, which means either epistemologically, either through your own ideas or by the very nature of the thing itself, you cannot know anything ever. And for historians, particularly after the 1960s, that is true. We don't know anything for certain. Because we accept this idea, we approach everything with a degree of skepticism. And because we approach these... Yeah. Keep it up. People are like, I think we're loving this here. Keep it going. Yeah, I mean, because of the fact... To say, because the idea you cannot test anything empirically, because you cannot test anything absent of your senses, you can never know anything ever for certain. Now, obviously, some people have risen, or like there have been some ideas about this not being the case, particularly the famous story of the guy who created this idea, Pyro himself. Uh, fleeing from an elephant which charged him. Uh, they said, why did you... Oh, no, it was a dog that tried to bite him. And his followers were like, why did you try to run away from this dog if... Obviously, that dog may not even exist. And Pyro said, well, it appeared that he existed. So I ran away. <laughs> that's how things work. That's how this... That's how postmodernism works. That's how Foucault works. That's how history today works. It appears that such and such is the case. We know, though, that it may not be actually so. And because of that, we ask further, deeper, piercing questions that allows us to create a fuller, more fleshed-out history. Whether we're looking at Nigeria in the 1900s or we're looking at France in the 1300s, or Japan at the year 1731. I mean, it doesn't matter what period it is. Because we are approaching history in this way, that's not to say that certain people weren't already doing this also, by the way, because uh, the Chinese, as they have pointed out, were well aware of some of the ideas of Foucault way before Foucault ever showed up. Um, Nevertheless... (laughs) Somebody over in China. That was my idea before you ever even thought of that idea. Oh yeah, I mean, some of these concepts. Like, okay, so one of the big things in, in in history today is the idea of hegemony. Now, if you're in political science, hegemony just <laughs> means total control over a group of people, right? Well, in history or in some of the other humanity fields. Cultural hegemony means not simply control in the 1984 sense. It means control more in, in Aldous Huxley. This is a cultural control. People won't do something not because you tell them and threaten them, but because they themselves believe this to be the truth. 
Antonio Gramsci in the 1930s, an Italian writer, a socialist, wrote this or talked about cultural hegemony in an attempt to explain why the United States never became socialist. And he explained that it was because of a cultural hegemony here, that we believed capitalism so deeply that we believed that capitalism was a part of American identity. People who were poor, people who were supposed to revolt because they believed in their heart of hearts that capitalism was true, that it was a part of their American person. So, my point here is that you have these different methods of control, these different methods of looking at history. And throughout history, we have different forms of hegemony. In, in Japan, even, there's a person named Aizawa or Aikawa. I can't quite remember his name, but he was writing a major piece in the 1820s, 1825. He became exceedingly popular with the Black Ships incident of the 1850s when Admiral Perry showed up in Japan and forced open his doors. The Japanese began to recognize that they needed some unifying force to consolidate uh, what it meant to be Japanese to, in order to resist these foreigners, these Americans. And they began to look to Aizawa, who talked about the necessity for a, essentially, hegemony. He did not use this term, obviously, but there. He was arguing for a unification of Japan across all spectrums, samurai, peasant, artisan, merchant, all connected back to something that they could all identify with. His suggestion was Shinto. It became Bushido. Yeah, and you know, I think it's great that we got to flesh out a lot of these ideas, um, especially uh, this idea of hegemony for an you know for the audience who's probably not as familiar with it, and also we got to we got to talk a little bit more about about the importance of realizing that there there are different ways in which people of other cultures conceive the world and conceive progress in the world and mm-hmm. conceptualize these things. There are different. It's important also to remember that there are pe- way, there's different ways in which people from other parts of the world conceptualize the idea of nationalism. Different oh, yeah. ways in which they conceptualize the idea of a nation, of a country. People have different ways of, of, of breaking these ideas down, and we've been getting the chance to flush this out for the audience. You know, it, it's exciting. It's exciting. And so I've, I've got one more question for you, Dan, before we before we uh, part. Oh, I know, and so much sorrow. Uh, but <laughs> I got one more question for you. Uh, Shoot. So, are you working on any other projects right now? And if so, what uh, what direction are you going in? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm actually transitioning a bit. Um, I'm actually getting ready to start law school uh, from now. Um, and the reason, yeah, the reason for my doing so is because a lot of the things that we talked about just now are super important. 
and I feel like the rest of the world should hear, hear about them. The problem sometimes within the history field itself is if I were to become a professor and publish a book, except for the fact that you're trying to put this out into the general populace, most people in academia will publish a book that will be read by a few hundred people, and that's it. So we know how this stuff works. We know the problems that exist in our our society today. We know how they developed, and we have a pretty good idea of what we should probably do to, uh, to do something about that. Nevertheless, the problem with that is um, most people never bother to try and to try and do anything about it any of that. So I'm hoping that if I choose to go into law, I'll have the opportunity to do something a little more concrete. Specifically, even if it comes enacting policy myself. And, and you bring up a really good point, and it is really the limitation of scholarship. Uh, you know, we as young scholars, we as young scholars want people to, to be able to be exposed to these ideas. But we have to recognize that it's just, <laughs> it's not always meant to be. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's a difficult road to travel. But I'm, I'm glad that you're finding a way to sort of get that out there. And I'm glad that we got to have this platform uh, to do this where we could get a lot of your ideas out there and get you the opportunity to talk about something you were very passionate about. I'm very, well, very happy we got to flesh out a lot of the things we got to flesh out. Well, I really appreciate it. Now, uh, in the future, um, if you'd ever be willing, I mean, I've done some more work with uh, Africa myself. Um, we have a really incredible scholar, uh, incredible professor at the University of Akron now, Dr. Oko, and uh, she uh, turned me on to some some interesting stuff, uh, particularly from Fred. Uh, in the future, if you'd ever be willing to talk about some of that stuff, please, please look me up because I I love Fred Cooper. This guy will blow your mind. With some of his stuff. You know what? He, you know what, Dan? I think we can manage that sometime. Yeah. Let's, let's work something out. Let's do that yeah. because I mean, he's one of the people who's pushing for a more of a connection, more of an interaction with the general populace. I think like he does not rely. Like, I think anybody who goes to grad school attests. Some scholars, some writers who will create books that are a trial to get through. And then once you sit down and you start to think about it, you're like, you know what? They're not saying anything that that's difficult. This is actually a really simple idea. But they're, for some reason, dragging it out with their jargon, with their complicated lexicon, with their vocabulary. Why are they doing that? I don't know. Maybe they're going through some sort of a power trip. Who the hell knows? But it is no infuriating. No one ever knows that. No one yeah, ever knows that. Whole... They, don't even... they don't even know. Yeah, no, the whole point is we're supposed to be helping other people. The whole point of our field is to empower the general populace, the people who generally do not have power. 
We're supposed to be helping them. But we create it, we, we, we create our tools in such a way that they don't have any idea how the hell to use them. So what's the point? <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, it is. And I agree with you on that. I really, I really think that you raise a really valid point in that you get, you know, it's such a pain in the ass sometimes to read some of the stuff we have to read. You know, it's not, the problem is not that there's a lack of information available. The problem is it's such a pain in the ass to have to get through some of it. Yeah. And there's no point. (laughs) Nobody Nobody wants to sit with a dictionary next to them the entire time when they're reading the history of, the Congo, they don't want to sit there with a dictionary next to them the entire time. They have, they have to thumb through every other page. Yeah, like, like what the hell does biopolitic mean? And then they sit there and they read. Their entry doesn't even make sense. So they sit there and they read yeah. seven more books, and finally they have an idea of what it might what mean. Are, what are what are islands of color? I'm I'm confused. What is what is biological terraforming? What does that mean? Like. What, what is hell, that? man! I don't even know. I don't know what the hell biological terraforming means. I don't know if you just made that up on the spot or if that's a legitimate thing that people say. Regardless, I don't want to know. That's that is ridiculous. It's, say it's, what it's the a, heck you mean? Yeah, it's it's actually a term that I used when I was talking about uh, our study in Doctor Hart's class, actually on uh, Francis Sana's in. Africa. Oh man! Yeah, where they were basically trying to acclimate to African climate. Did you read but that book from yeah. uh, Eric Jennings? Uh, what was that book? Eric Jennings' book, um, "Curing the Colonizers." Yes, curing the colonizers. Now that's actually an okay book. Not bad. No, it's not bad, but. Yeah, that that uh, that demonic terminology is where that came from. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. I mean, like, like I'm saying, like, who, like the butt sex guy you called in. I mean, that guy, if he's still listening, I don't know. Maybe he is a historian. Maybe oh, he read some of the stuff. Okay, well, butt sex guy, if you're listening. I don't know if you're a historian, but in the future, call in again, and we'll talk about what some of the stuff means. And, and you know, there's a there's a, a huge, huge historiography. There uh, is. There anal is. anal sexual it. relations in various oh, cultures. Dan, I knew you were gonna go there. Dan, do you want to do you want to give him some books to read? You want to send him home with some homework? <laughs> Well, no, I don't have any books personally because, to be honest with you, I was never a big sexuality scholar. I was always more interested in racial relations, um, or I, I, I was more of a crap. What's the term? I thought we were gonna weedle out of you, Dan. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I was more of a race historian, or. Uh, I did not do a lot with sexuality. Um, it's fascinating. It's incredible work. There's uh, there's all sorts of books out there for American history or otherwise that talk about a lot of this stuff. But I'm afraid I do not know them. 
Like I said, I mentioned Winston King's book, uh, the Zen and the Way of the Sword. It talks about a lot more than just homosexuality. Um, oh yeah. There are a lot of other books out there uh, that talk about the same. Um, they're, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess they can look up. I guess he can look up Boswell if he really wants to. Yeah, I, I mean, don't advise it. Well, no, <laughs> that's but, just Boswell trying to make everything gay. He's he was just so determined to make sure everybody knew that there were people at different times that were gay, which is not a bad thing per se. But it it really didn't it really didn't translate over too well in some of the instances of which he used it. <laughs> No, no, of course it did not. Now, of course, uh, Michel Foucault, who wrote his sexuality and disappointed punish and, and our galaxy of knowledge, all those for pretty much anybody doing any sort of graduate work today. Um, Foucault. He was gay. Foucault, yeah. I mean, he's got plenty of stuff to say about a lot of sexuality issues and so on and so forth, so that's a good book to look at. Sex and Power, Dan. Sex and Power. Sex and power, of course. I really, really wish I had more to say about that aspect. Um, maybe another I, time, I, this, Dan. Maybe another time. Like, I'm going to have to do some research myself. I mean, sexuality in Japan is something I've always been relatively interested in, particularly because um, I developed my interest initially through ninja and samurai. And then as I came of age and I was like, I, I don't know, in, in the high school, I became very interested in, in uh, anime or anime. Um, and, of course, you have a lot of stuff that plays with sexuality <laughs> in anime. Um, you have a lot of that stuff that's, uh, uh, God, what's the term? There's a lot of stuff that's... Are you going down the hentai path with me, Daniel? What's that? Are you bringing up hentai now, Daniel? No, no, I am not. But I am going to talk about, (laughs) um, gosh, what is the term? I cannot believe, I cannot recall a term. If someone can call in and remind me of a term for homosexual erotic manga or anime, please, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, it's it, it, it's prolific. I mean, it's all over the place. And sexuality in Japan is is except now, um, homose- a gay marriage has only recently become legal in like Shinjuku, which is one of the most populated regions in Tokyo, which is one of the most populated regions in Japan. But not because they want to showcase human rights so much as they want to downplay any human rights issues that might arise therein. Uh, Japan is so obsessed with saving face, except things that they are not comfortable with, then something. Then, then, then to appear backward or behind. Yeah. So, there you go. There's that. There's that. <laughs> Stop there now, man. Go go look up your special anime. Make you feel better. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Dan, it has been a pleasure having you on. It's very exciting to have you. you on, and I knew that we would have a good time, and we did have a good time. Guys, those of you that are listening out there, if you have questions, if you have an interest in Bushido, if you have an interest in Samurai, reach out to Dan on Facebook. If you'd like, you can reach out to me, and I will pass your your questions along to Dan as well. So you don't bombard Dan with questions. But I mean, feel free to, to ask Dan me. With, I might not know, but but if but if you if you come to Dan with questions, he will try to answer the questions. That's the great thing about Dan. He will try to answer your questions. So and I'll admit uh, when I don't know because of why he will. Shit. He will. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> don't don't you worry, Dan. There's a lot we both don't know. So, guys. This has been the Bareback Facts with Totally Driven Entertainment. I'm Dallas. I've been your host with Daniel Hovater. It's been a pleasure. Dan, it's time to say goodbye. Thank you, sir. Thank Anytime. you for coming on. Take it You're easy, welcome, welcome. All right. Guys, that was Daniel Hovater from University of Akron. It's a pleasure having him on. Hopefully we get callers that actually care about what we're talking about in the future. Um, it's been a pleasure having them on. And again, this has been the Bareback Facts with Dallas Duclo, your host with Totally Driven Entertainment. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everybody, and we'll see you next week.